Alrighty. Hello there, everybody. Uh, just going to wait for Richard to arrive, which I'm assuming will be very soon. And there he is. Go. Hey, how's it going? Good. You glued to your uh, screen for the, the, is it, is the is the hearing is the hearing underway right now? Appa- apparently so. Yeah, I didn't think they went on this late, but yeah, Kellyanne Conway's husband's on CNN talking about it, and he looks he looks awful. But yeah, they're <laughs> they're in like a they're in like an intermission. So yeah, it's really? I, I, I guess they put it during prime time. I thought it was only supposed to be ninety minutes. I think it's over uh, now. I just checked the stream. I haven't been. Uh, I mean, I haven't who, been uh, who cares? Um, yeah, I haven't seen it. I'm not sure I would have watched it anyway, but I was on Tucker this evening, and so that precluded me from being riveted to the hearing, and I'm told this is the most important hearing since man um, walked Earth. <laughs> so uh, I guess I'll have to, to make a point to go go view it or else I'm going to be uh, totally totally lost as to how to defend our democracy. Have you have you even heard any of the news that's come out? I get these um, news alerts about like what's happening during the hearing and all of them are like so stupid. Like one is like uh, you know, inner Trump's inner circle had doubts about election fraud claim <laughs> like okay. Like okay, that's what the <laughs> what? Washington Post 26 minutes ago. Uh, Bill Barr Bob, was on I mean that I, I haven't seen it. Right, so I'm not sure, but Bill Barr did a whole book tour this spring, where he, you know, made that revelation, you know, months ago, and and he's the one who also, you know, leaked uh, told the Associated Press in December of 2020 that the Department of Justice had not uncovered any fraud. So I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's some. That, that, the purpose of this hearing, I'm not even sh- – there, there doesn't seem like a genuine investigative purpose to this hearing. Like what dots need to be connected that people aren't, aren't already aware of and are not already in the public record? I think the hope is to, is to find something that – where it becomes more like a conscious plan. Like Trump told somebody, OK, we're going to go scare Mike Pence. Uh, and he's going to give me the election and like congressmen were in on it. I think that's what it is. I think it has to be some kind of explicit plan because I mean, everything else is just, we sort of watched it all happen. Yeah. Um, as I was waiting to go on Fox, I was sitting in the little adjacent room and, uh, Tulsi Gabbard was on and the Are you Chiron, go, you, you're, you go live to the studio, like a studio. Yeah, you know, actually, I hadn't gone to the studio in years since COVID um, because <laughs> they were sending out remote vans. Yeah, that's what they which get was for an, my two appearances. Yeah, that's which was an incredible luxury. I mean, that was a COVID thing, though. I mean, prior to COVID, when I, was, when I would do Fox, I would always go into the studio because there was no other option. Um, but this is the first time since uh, March of 2020 that I've been on where I pretty much had to go back to the studio. So, yeah. I was back there, um, which meant I couldn't wear sweatpants, as I usually yeah. do. Um, <laughs> you wear pants, man? Come on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> actually, I probably could have worn sweatpants. There's, talk, hard, talk there's hardly anyone really even in 
these buildings still. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't see very many people at all in the Fox building. Um, I was going to say, when, it, when told you what's on the, the Chiron, the flash on the screen was, uh, Liz Cheney opens hearing with boring remarks. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so you're going from New Jersey to, like, uh, to Manhattan? Well, Jersey City, so, I mean, I'm right outside Manhattan anyway. Uh, still must be a pain if you drive there, right? Well, oh, I don't drive. I mean, they send somebody. Oh, that's right. They do send someone, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you think I am? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny to imagine. Yeah, yeah. They got, they got the money. Last time I was on, uh, it was I was in London, and so I had to go to trek out to this bizarre little studio in Westminster at one a.m. Um, and uh, that was a strange experience. It was just me and one guy in this studio in the middle of the night for like an hour. <laughs> So you love this. I just turned on CNN. The Chiron says attack on democracy. The January 6th. <laughs> it's unbearable. Oh my God. I'm unbearable. Not like I've been watching. I just turned it on. and looked at the Chiron. Yeah, because as anyone who follows you is aware, democracy can be easily quantified into a metric that allows you to, for example, rank countries and can provide really persuasive pretexts for, for example, launching military intervention. So whenever we see democracy kind of flaunted as this melodramatic concept, we should always take it at face value. You know, it's it's like, uh, like it's so, like, even if, like, you accept, like, what they think about January 6th, it was like, you know, an attempted coup to, like, overturn the election. Since when do we talk like this? Since when do we go the sacred halls of our democracy? Like, they treat it like it's, like, a religious temple, which is, like, not the way, like, people talked about, like, American democracy, I think, before, uh, you know, January 6th. It's just a weird, a very weird, like, don't they, they think they're like, oh, they think the like, they think we don't have a democracy. They think the electoral college is like undemocratic and they think like everything Republicans do is undemocratic. But then it's suddenly like, oh my God, they've, they've sullied the sacred temple of this electoral college thing. They, they actually use the phrase temple. They actually use the phrase temple of democracy or temple to democracy. Yeah, um, Adam Schiff has said it. I, I, you know, before I went on Tucker this evening, I, was just looking through some past notes related to January 6th and on the very, his very, the very first remarks that were delivered on the floor of um, the Senate as they were ratifying the Electoral College results once they were able to reconvene after being temporarily inconvenienced that night. Um, Chuck Schumer, after he likened January 6th to Pearl Harbor and said they'll both live in infamy, those days will both live in infamy to like the same magnitude... Um, he then uh, said, quote, our temple to democracy was desecrated. So they actually used that creepy religious, you know, quasi-religious terminology. Yeah, Schumer is uh, an awful man. Did you, I just saw today uh, or the other day because of the uh, arrest outside Kavanaugh's home. I mean, there was he was on the, like, the steps of the Supreme Court not that long ago saying, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, you will pay. You will pay if you take away people's rights. I mean, like, who's like this is like okay to talk like this? I mean, imagine if Trump went around, you know, the judges who are against me are going to pay. I mean, this would be like the biggest scandal in the world. I mean, these people, they get a, they get a, they get away with things that other people couldn't get away with. 
Well, I don't know the exact quote of Schumer's when he was speaking from the steps of the Supreme Court. You will pay. I mean, you don't get to say you will pay for. Well, I mean, I don't. I I actually don't think that's particularly extreme. How do you rhetoric. make a judge pay? <laughs> you know, there's no legitimate way to to do that. Like, it's not I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they'll pay by Democrats <laughs> winning control of Congress, and then they'll be able to appoint all the. Subsequent Supreme Court justices said they'll be relegated to minority. I don't know. I mean, whatever he said. I mean, you will pay doesn't strike me as particularly egregious. But it, it, it is true that if, you know, the roles were reversed and anything that could have been remotely construed as a potential physical threat against, like, Ruth Bader Ginsburg would have prompted a meltdown in cries of fascism. Okay, how about this? I want to tell you, Neil Gorsuch and you, Brett Kavanaugh, you have unleashed a whirlwind, and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. Come on. Like, either we're going to hit you or you don't know what's going to hit you because we're going to win the election. And, uh, and- I, I guess my, my point is that I don't really find that particularly egregious on the merits. Is it but the double it's, standard. it's egregious in terms of, the, yeah, the double standard and how it's portrayed. You know, they'll, they'll, <laughs> this Kavanaugh would be assassin was actually at least you know this is just alleged at this point because we don't have full documentation or evidence. But at least in terms of what is been, has been reported, he was unusually explicit in just stating outright that his political motivation was to advance the twin causes of gun control and abortion, which are like the most generic pro Democrat causes ever. Just, yeah. Whatever he sees on TV. And, and, and yet, you know, but, but no, no connection is drawn between him and Democrats to assign culpability to Democrats. And I don't think there should be culpability assigned to Democrats. because I think this whole causality structure that is erected around who's to, blame for mass, you know, outbreaks of violent events or attacks or whatever. I think it's nonsensical. Maybe it's because I studied David Hume in college, so I'm always skeptical of claims, uh, spurious claims of causation. Um, But, you know, I remember back uh, when uh, the mass shooting happened in Tucson, Arizona, where Gabrielle Giffords was shot. Uh Um, And... Sarah Palin was immediately blamed, and this actually yeah. was litigated for years because she, because um, it was this episode was referenced after the congressional baseball shooting, and Sarah Palin sued the New York Times. Um, but anyway, the the, the 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 thing, the issue was Sarah Palin was immediately blamed, like nah. denounced as personally culpable for the attack. Because she had put out a, me- a, a post on Facebook where there was a where different congressional yeah. districts on a map were targeted, yeah. and she put a little um, you know bullseye on each of the target districts, and that was enough to construe that she was personally culpable. Even though it turned out that the shooter, this guy Jared Lee Alofner, was just you know out out of like insane, um, just a mentally unhinged um, and barely had any coherent political views at all, except like vague conspiracy stuff. Yeah. That, no, that guy was completely off. Like that, had, that guy had no politics at all. I and mean, he was like completely schizophrenic. I, re- I remember that. I think there is a thing. So what did you think back when they were uh, uh, protesting at Kavanaugh's house? Because I think that when you protest at their house, 
you give people ideas. It's a very small step for protesting at someone's house to going and doing something. Do you think that there's a, there's a, the McPalin thing was ridiculous. I agree. Uh, most of these times it's out of the, are ridiculous, but sometimes I think there's something to it. Um, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that protesting at a powerful official's house gives license to cr- crazies in a country of 330 million who might then subsequently do something crazy. I mean, I don't think that's a defensible yeah. connection to make. No, um, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I mean, I personally probably wouldn't protest at a Supreme Court justice's house. I don't think it's particularly extreme. You know, Chuck Schumer was asked about that. Speaking of Chuck Schumer, um, asked for his opinion on these protests at the Supreme Court justice's houses. And he actually said something factual in response, which is that there are protests at his house in Brooklyn all the time. And there are. Um, I've seen them. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I just don't think, you know, I don't think it's that unthinkably you know, uh, unacceptable. Are, are the so are they protesting on Chuck Schumer's sides? Like they want him to like do more against him uh, to preserve Roe v. Wade, right? They're not pro-life protesters that are coming. Uh, well, these, this isn't recently. I'm just saying, over the years, Chuck Schumer has had many protests at his house uh-huh. um, for related various issues. Okay. And, yeah, yeah, and usually, are... it's, and usually, it's like more yeah, left-wing protesters yeah. who want him to be more progressive or something. Yeah, I mean, judges are supposed to be somewhat different. Maybe that's not justified, but there's this idea that, like, I don't know, we all live with, like, the uh, the sort of pleasant fiction. Like, you can have different norms in society, right? So, like, sometimes you could have a society where people are boisterous and they go after politicians anywhere, and then you could have a society where they don't. But we have, like, a two-tiered system where, like, politicians are sort of considered different from judges. Um, and so, you know, there, it's just like a different thing to like confront a judge. Like, we have this like myth that they're impartial and they're doing something sort of sacred. And so it is like, you know, maybe that makes sense. Maybe it doesn't, but it, it is sort of <laughs> violating a norm that, you know, that does exist. Oh, so you're, you're really into norms now? I'm sort of into norms. Yeah. I, I think that they, some of I mean, because maybe I went to law school, I was, uh, I was brainwashed by, by this stuff, oh. but oh, yeah. I, I actually didn't know you went to law school. I yeah. Gonna... I graduated from law school back in uh, 2013. Uh, okay. so yeah, maybe I, maybe I have a little bit too much. You're everything my mom wanted me to be. <laughs> Your mom wanted you to be a sub stacker. I think I think you accomplished that. <laughs> well, she wanted me to go to law school or graduate school or something. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. Uh, I didn't practice law, but I did. I did finish law school. Uh, so yeah, maybe they brainwashed you with too much reverence for. Uh, which uh, which what law school did you go to? Uh, University of Chicago. Oh okay. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. First of all, <laughs> it is a myth. it is a myth. Again, I'm not necessarily advocating that people go protest at judges' houses. Maybe there is something violative about it in terms of the previously existing norm. Um, but I just don't think there's any necessary connection between that and an assassin. Because uh, uh, otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, then, I mean, if, if you can see that there is a connection there, then, I don't know, there are plenty of... There have been right-wing protests in recent years where... You know, granted, I, I can't think off the top of my head of anybody going to someone's private home, but, you know, there were, uh, like, 
you know, even during, during at the beginning of COVID, you know, remember when there was the panic over these like groups that were thought to be militia linked that would be showing up to state houses and, you know, with the intent to quote unquote intimidate or pressure uh, governors to lift lockdown restrictions. Um, I, I just think you have to make a lot of allowances for protest activity. Doesn't mean I would necessarily support it or attend one myself, but I, I'm just very wary of how flippantly violent acts like this one yesterday or, or um, others that have happened. I mean, Tucker Carlson was personally blamed for the Buffalo attack, the, the Buffalo mass shooting. Yeah. Even though he wasn't cited in the manifesto. I mean, the shooter was explicit about who his actual influences were. His influences were, uh, of course, Brevik and the uh, Christchurch New Zealand shooter. So it's not like he was trying to hide who he was influenced by, but that didn't prevent Tucker from being blamed. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I, just think, I just think there's a lot of poor reasoning involved in these descriptions of culpability. Okay, so yeah, the Tucker thing is like, Tucker says, like, X, I don't like immigration. And this guy says, I don't like immigration. So, like, Tucker calls this guy. So, that's nonsense. But, you know, it's like, this thing is like, you go protest how people's houses. You say the judges, you know, are, uh, you know, you have heated rhetoric. But then you're, you're actually protesting over their house and the private life. And then it's like, you know, the person gets the idea. The person, you know, like, even they get the idea, oh, I could find out where they live, which is like, not, you know, not everyone doesn't know that, like, off the top of their head. So it's like, it's like a, uh, it, it's, 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 you know, on a spectrum. I think the judges, another thing, now that I think about it, another thing about the judges is like, assassination is actually like a good way to get what you want politically. Like, if you go kill one senator or you kill one congressman, um, you know, nothing happens. The country doesn't change that much. Even if you kill the president, he's replaced by the vice president, um, who's a member of the same party. Uh, killing a judge, killing a judge, actually, you know, Supreme Court justice actually is like if you just wanted the most efficient. Yeah. It's not like Biden would necessarily appoint a uh, caretaker Republican. Yeah, yeah, that'd be funny for, for a lifetime I'm, term. Yeah, they would call for him to do that. I, that would be yeah, yeah. They, yeah I'd Maybe he would do. It. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I you probably just appoint Merrick Garland or something. Yeah, fifty-fifty Senate. I mean, who knows? Like, you know, it could be Manchin or Cinema could like just you know have that idea, and then he might have to or something. Uh, but yeah. So you're so, so so you're saying it's not the heatedness of the rhetoric that is at issue in terms of whether culpability can be rightly ascribed. It's the physical location. It's the physical location plus the heated rhetoric towards so like the. Uh, Tucker thing. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, heated rhetoric. I mean, uh, so you could you could say that Tucker's guilty of promulgating heated rhetoric. Yeah, but that's uh, that's I, Yeah, I guess you're right. If what he talks about people, he doesn't like. Yeah, it's the location. Plus, it's just judges. It's like you know, assassinating a judge is like such a logical thing to do if you just want to change policy. I mean, it, it just actually is, and it's like sort of a, a miracle. Like <laughs> people don't try it more often because it is actually like you're going to change the country if you get away with it. No, you don't well, have there to get was... away with it. You could get caught. Um, and so I think that, that that's a justification for being, okay, judges off limits. Like we treat them like, you know, they're, they're just like, you know, they're priests. They, you know, you could yell at your politicians, yell at your senators before they appoint the judge. You could do whatever you want to sort of, uh, uh, you know, play dirty whatever you want, like during the Senate confirmation hearings. Uh, but yeah, you, you got to basically leave them alone once they're on the court. 
Well, there was a federal judge in New Jersey in 2020 who was a victim of a home invasion. Yeah, by, I this. Yeah. by a guy who was like a men's rights activist and anti-feminist and, um, you know, had a slew of grievances along those lines. Yeah. And um, shot dead her son. Yeah. And um, also shot her husband. I don't think the husband died, but the son did die. And in response, New Jersey passed sweeping reform to what's called the OPRA law, basically the public, public records law in New Jersey, to make it almost – to pro- prohibit citizens from obtaining potentially uh, identifying information about not just judges. They included police officers – they included any kind of law enforcement official, um, and, and yeah, others why, who might. Why should it be? Why should it be? You sh- why should you be able to find out where anyone lives? Right? Like you could basically find out where anyone lives with you know a minimum amount of work. Like why should that be? Why should that be the case? Right? That those aren't but public. It, but it, it just is the case. I mean, there's nothing particularly new about it. People scream about doxing and whatever. Does that mean everyone was doxed back when people used like the? Yellow pages, and you can just look up anybody's address and phone number in the yeah. white section. Do you remember that? I, yeah, I don't know. I think I there's a bit of hysteria. I mean, people. I mean, I've had people the threaten to come to my address here and there, and you know, you never know exactly how crazy yeah. it might be. But yeah, nothing, I, I also don't think it's like that. Yeah, you know, uh, remarkable. Yeah, I mean, has anyone like you know? Has have you ever felt like something was, you were in danger that anything was going to really actually happen? Um, the the point where I thought there was the highest probability that there could be danger, I didn't think it was particularly high, but at least the highest likelihood of danger um, was right after the George Floyd protest and riot started, and. Um, I was, you know, swarmed by people who didn't. There, all I did was post a screenshot of somebody's Twitter profile who was taking part in the, the um, Chaz protest in Seattle, and it was like an eighteen-year-old gender-neutral something. Yeah. And all I did was point out that in that person's profile banner on, on Twitter, they kind of celebratorily had displayed a photo of a burning building. And the building was this apartment building in Minneapolis that had been set fire to. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were like joyous about the fact that this apartment – it wasn't even like a commercial building or a bank or something. It was just an apartment building. But they thought it was great that this was attacked – by arsonists and put it in their profile. This is one of the people who was like uh, organizing um, the action in Seattle. And so I pointed that out and people, you know, went just wild against me and there were, there were threats that. So these were like, like these are the people who like do this for sort of a, yeah, that's funny. Remember when like the proud boys and them would like, like these are just people like looking to fight. Right. Um, I, I, th- I think the, the the ones who threatened me were kind of just people who already didn't like me and um, 
you know, just maybe you wanted to intimidate me or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if they wanted to fight per se. I think probably none of them had the physical fortitude to actually try to follow through on their threats. Yeah, um, but you. But again, you never really know. Actually, because yeah. uh, um, it wasn't that big of a deal ultimately, because it was like a day before I was going to be leaving my apartment anyway to go on my nationwide the nationwide tour that I did that year. Uh, but when I was when I said that I was going to be going to Minneapolis, there were like local Antifa types who uh, put out a statement saying that. I better not come to Minneapolis because they'll track me down and kick my ass. <laughs> that you know, they never found me. It's like <laughs> I went to Minneapolis without issue. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, yeah. I mean, you just have to think about it probabilistically, and then when I you know, it's like how many polit- how many politicians are there? How many political commentators are there? How many journalists are there? How many people are on their TV? You know, there are many, many that are many more, much more famous than uh, me or you. And like you know, they're living their lives and they're okay. So you always have to just keep in mind that like this is very, very rare. I mean, be being a Twitterer, a journalist, you're going to get like you're going to get like you know a lot of like hostility and threats, like much more than the average person. Like you know, a manager at Walmart or something. Like you're going to get a lot more people angry at you. But your like odds of dying on the job is like you know not any higher than theirs. So you have to just remember that like yeah, probably lower. I'll talk, and you know. Nothing's gonna happen. So this is why this is funny. This is why the like the you know the, all these journalists, you know, I'm unsafe, right? Like you know, like the you know Felisa Sanchez and these other these other people who talk about you know the toxic abuse they face. I mean, yeah, I mean if you're sensitive, that can be hurtful. But the idea that you're actually objectively unsafe, like no, you're just you're just not. I mean, it's just like it's like triple masking outside for COVID. It just it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you know it's. <laughs> On on the Felicia issue, you know, I'm bring uh, I'm now remembering something that had that I experienced, which at the time I made sure to qualify and say, "Look, this was not an egregious act of violence that was inflicted upon me. I'm fine. I, I'm not. I don't need medical attention. No big deal." Uh, but in 2020, when I was in Portland, there's actually a video of this because I was live streaming. Um, you know, these two Antifa guys, you know, white guys in Portland, accosted me, uh, snatched my phone out of my hands, and threatened to curb stop me, uh, forced me to run away, and hurled, uh, you know, uh, objects at me. And, um, you know, the. So that was, you know, that was a more tangible form of physical, I guess you could call it violence in a way. I didn't get struck or punished or anything, but the guy did steal my phone right out of my hands. Um, he gave it back because, you know, I was just trying to defuse the situation and get out of there. Um, I didn't really have, you know, I didn't have security with me and that there were no police around at all. Um, but the reaction among journalists to that event to the extent that I saw it, was laughter. I mean, they, they loved it. They thought it was great that I had been subject to this event. Um, they, you know, they, they, they made out me to be the wrongdoer 
almost almost unanimously with like a couple of exceptions. Um, and I um, got contacted maybe a month later by one of these journalism nonprofit groups. I think it was like the Freedom of the Press Foundation or something, which is actually one of the better groups. I mean, I don't care for any of these journalistic out- outfits that are just like obsessed with journalism as such. Have like a, just as a professional guild, um, but somebody from from that organization called me and, and uh, wanted to interview me about the incident because they keep a database of you know attacks on journalists globally. And I wanted to I, I reiterated to this person, look, I don't really regard this as a severe attack. I never did. I was you know went out of my way to state that right from the outset. But I I did the interview with the person. And um, they decided that they were not going to include it. They ultimately decided that they were not going to put it in their database because I, you know, didn't I uh, wasn't at that exact moment in Portland working for a specific media outlet. Even no, though I wrote, count. even yeah, so I didn't count. Um, and uh, you know, I actually did write a column for the wall street journal that in part drew on that event. So, but you know, that didn't count either apparently. Um, so I, 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 I'm just mentioning that because when I see the laughable disparity in how certain acts of quote violence or abuse or harassment are depicted versus others, the lack of any coherent standard at all, the the fact that it's totally contingent on you know whatever the prevailing political or uh, cultural attitudes are, uh, it makes me <laughs> scornful of people who claim the status for themselves and expect everyone to rally around them. And so, especially if you're like a, you're a Felicia, where I mean, all she was doing was posting screenshots. Of people who are making fun of her over the past week, and, and if that's and the sta- if that's the standard, and if that's the standard for when one can claim victim status and receive accommodations from the Washington Post, then you know I should be appointed editor in chief of the Washington Post. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it's funny. There was a, a, a story in the New York Times about like threats to press freedom in Eastern Europe. This was earlier this year. So it went like all these countries in Eastern Europe, and some of them were like so stupid. It was like, oh, Serbia, like the uh, you know the president like makes fun of journalists, or like in the Czech Republic, Hungary, of course, you know, let's talk about. It. But then like the one country they didn't talk about was like Ukraine, uh, which uh, you know for journalists like was worse, was most certainly worse than any of those other countries. This was before the war, uh, and it just it just it just got ignored. I mean, it just didn't count. So. All this stuff is, yeah, all this stuff is, uh, yeah, I mean, what they do is they take, you know, they they find out if you've been attacked. They take it, they put it in a database, right? It, there's a million judgment calls that go into it. Like, okay, Mike Tracy doesn't doesn't count, right? So that would be like a, like if they were coding it, they would say that would be a case of left-wing violence, right? But then, you know, they decided not to code that one, so that's one less uh, left-wing violence uh, incident, right? And then the next thing, you know, the, the you know the, their standard of proof and what they include and what they hear about, and though you know the, the you know that'll influence. Uh, 
uh, how they react. And then they're going to take it and then they're going to put a number. And then it's a number on like our democracy score, or our freedom of the press, like under what happened under Trump, what happened under Biden. And like the media will run with it. Like it's a very, you know, serious scientific exercise. Uh, and they'll tell us, you know, our democracy is in trouble or our democracy is doing well. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's really, yeah, I, I like what you said about, like, journalism is like a guild. Like, yeah, you're just the guy who, like, writes stuff and, like, you know, takes your phone and, like, goes places and, like, sees what's happening, right? You don't sit there thinking about, oh, my God, journalists are, you know, this or journalists. They're not like your identity. Like, they're not like <laughs> yeah, your, exactly. They're not like your, your uh, you know, they're, they're not like your family, your tribe. I mean, it's just... It's uh, and- just yeah, it's so it's so annoying when journalists actually do identify with being a journalist as like an identity category. And it's funny because um, when people try to insult me online, they'll say, you're not a journalist. Or they'll they'll deny that I've done anything journalistic. And it's just like, I mean, you you're you're mistakenly assuming that I have some sort of emotional attachment to this word. You know, when I criticize journalists. I'll call them a, a journalist because that's just what they are, even if I think they're terrible. Because there's no like inher- inherent uh, moral uh, righteousness associated with being a journalist. In fact, some of the scummiest people on earth are journalists. It's just like a neutral thing that one can or cannot do. And, you know, it's also annoyingly like exclusivist and elitist. I mean, one of the the reasons why growing up, I didn't really even entertain the idea of being a journalist initially was because I just had absorbed this idea that it was this exclusive cast of people that I couldn't join um, or I didn't know how to join. And there's something like anti, I mean, I know you're not necessarily a, uh, the, the the world's number one lover of democracy, but there is something like really anti-democratic or anti-egalitarian about it because there is like literally a constitutional an amendment in the constitution that allows anybody to engage in freedom of the press, and yet these journalists and their guilds like to exclusivize it. And you know that was and they you know, they can't really do it as much anymore because it's just so social media and so ubiquitous. But you know back when blogging first came onto the scene, I mean these these were arguments that. There were, you would see arguments that uh, citizen journalism was like a misnomer because it's just not possible. Um, yeah. Yeah, although, so there's just there's something grating about that to me. Yeah, although, I mean, there is something, I mean, good about, like, I do think that, like, if you take just basic, like, are they honest about the facts? Like, if you read the New York Times or Washington Post or Wall Street Journal, like, are the things they te- they're telling you? Like, yeah, it's going to be biased and the facts are going to be presented a certain way. But, like, you know, if they tell you something, is it just going to be completely made up, right? And, my, you know, and that tends not to be the case. And Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's not, and, and that's, like, that doesn't sound like it's, like, much. But it actually, it is much. If you see well, that's the problem with right-wing media, right? I mean, it's much more likely if you're looking at some, especially right-wing online media, that it is just going to be something that's totally made up or wasn't checked or you know, basic. Yeah. Do you have any elderly wasn't... relatives who just run into conservative like fake news on the on Facebook and like come at you and like, oh, Biden just resigned? I mean, like, I get this stuff like all the time. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, not really. My, I, I don't. I think uh, I have an uncle who. Every time I saw him, would just repeat whatever Rush Limbaugh said. He was just like a, a daily three-hour-a-day Rush Limbaugh listener. Uh-huh. Um, I don't think he's as into – I mean, actually, I'm not sure if he's on Facebook or not. But 
most of the time, whenever we would talk about, whenever he would try to like confront me about something political, it would be based on Rush Limbaugh. Um, yeah. Now, Rush Limbaugh is pretty highbrow and like you know very good journalism compared to <laughs> what, yeah. what boomers are listening to today. I mean, if we only we had Rush Limbaugh. You know, they're, they're far well, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm not I'm not saying that there's no utility to having certain like professionalized journalist structures where you yeah. know stuff has to be double checked and there's an editorial process. And so on. I, my problem is it is is it becoming this identity where every they're always they're always like you know, to be to put it crudely like jerking each other off for how wonderful their journalism is. I mean that's why I hate like the, these journalism awards ceremonies. People say, "Oh, it's because you're jealous." Yeah. Well, no, I'm actually not jealous. I don't voluntarily consort with many that many journalists. Like uh, it's because yeah. uh, it's 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 always. But maybe those the good thing and the bad thing are connected. So you're like, oh, they're an identity. They have an identity being journalists. Okay, yeah, that's pretty annoying. But then, like, okay, they have these professional norms where, like, they try to at least, you know, uh, stick to the truth and not just like make things up. And maybe like you need that sort of group identity to like, you know, have any kind of ethics, right? Like, because conservatives are not into being a journalist, and they're just into being conservatives first and foremost. And so, like, yeah, yeah, that's they don't true. care. They don't care about you know anything as long as it hurts Biden, right? They'll go with it. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that there's something to that. Um, you know, I I, uh, I guess it's it's not entirely true that being a journalist is divorced from my identity. Obviously, like if you look at my Twitter bio, I write I put journalist there because that's like how I characterize myself. I, I don't have a, I don't have like an emotional attachment to it though as this label that confers on on me some kind of virtue because I think you because obviously you can be a journalist or you could be someone who could be rightly described as a journalist and have zero virtue, um, and, and yet when people you know use that insult against me, the implicit assumption is that there's something you know intrinsically virtuous about being. A journalist or having that label assigned to you. And she's like, no, I mean, some of the, again, some of the biggest scumbags ever have also been journalists. I mean, William Randolph Hearst, I mean, is that, I mean, the guy was a journalist in a sense, but doesn't mean he wasn't a scumbag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we need to, yeah, we need to find, uh, we I mean, that guy, that guy, Ilya Pomarenko, who I had another interaction with me, he keeps going after me for some reason from the key, quote unquote, Kiev Independent. Uh-huh. The defense reporter who got algorithmically boosted by Twitter, so that he got like a million followers in a week. Yeah, um, you know I, he's that guy's just a prop, uh, a PR operative. I mean, he's just a propagandist, and I don't necessarily begrudge someone who wants to become a propagandist for their country during a time of war. Uh, but that's what he's doing. He's a propagandist, um, and yet even still. I would call that guy a journalist because there's nothing necessarily um, inconsistent or, or uh, conflicting between being a propagandist and being a journalist. You can use the vehicle of journalism to spread propaganda, and many journalists do it very effectively. So, yeah, I, you know, yeah, I want there, I want there to be a way. Yeah, I mean, the, well, ideally, there would be a way to bring like these, you know, the better parts of the media. I was talking about the Washington Post, maybe on Twitter. It's like they do like some great reporting. You can go there and you can find what's going on in some like third world country on the other side of the world, or you can find out what's going on in Congress. And then you have like Felicia Sodman sitting there, like this guy made a joke. These people are attacking me. You know, I'm uh, I'm suffering violence and you know aggression, and it's just like. 
you know, these are like the same institution. It's like, you know, yeah, and, and then you, it's not just uh, Felicia. You read like some of the race stuff, like anything on race or gender. I mean, it's just completely crazy. I mean, it was like, I saw an article after uh, the shooting in Texas. It was like, why do we have a First Amendment? Well, experts say it's white supremacy. And I'm like, oh, yeah, like, yeah, like, you know, like, who, like, who's surprised that they went with that take? I mean, it's just so predictable. And so <laughs> the, Wa- the Washington Post also famously allows ghost-written op-eds by ACLU strategic communications experts on behalf of Amber Heard to run in their publication. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that did they know that they know it was a uh, did they know it was like written by a PR firm? I think they claim they didn't. Um, yeah, apparently, when you know. submit when you submit an op-ed, I think they were written. I wrote for one thing for the like a Washington Post blog years ago, but I've never I've never written an actual op-ed for the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. Apparently, you have to attest that you wrote it. Uh, I wrote one article for the Washington. I wrote two, I think. I wrote one on the blog and then one main uh, uh, op-ed. I uh, I don't remember. I might have clicked on something like that, but no, I, I don't remember doing that. Yeah, I don't think. I don't think. Uh, I think to the extent the Washington Post commented on it, they indicated that they did not know that it was ghost. Yeah, well, written, you know, but op-ed. they know. I mean, <laughs> seventy almost all op-eds are ghost written, coming from yeah. some kind of public figure. Yeah. Um, or even if they're not like 100% ghost written, they consult like any celebrity who writes an op-ed has vast networks that they can dip into of ghost writers who will assist them. Um, so that's almost always the case with these, you know, when somebody who's not like a typical op-ed writer submits something. Yeah. Yeah. So, CEOs. Uh, I mean, you know, it's they, they, they all it's all ghost written. Um, do you want to uh, do you want to talk more about Felicia? Or you want to you want to get to Ukraine? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Do you have any? What, what, what's your thought on the calculation that the Washington Post made in taking the somewhat unexpected step of terminating her today? I don't know whether I was surpri- surprised or not. I guess it did seem untenable for them to just have Felicia there. Because like you, you, there are people. I mean, as as hard as I am on journalists, right? Especially elite journalists. There are people who work at the Washington Post who just sincerely want to do a good job at journalism and aren't really into being embroiled in constant internal drama. And so I think that's what did Felicia in. I mean, I think if. She, she just kept the spectacle going and she wouldn't even accept the ridiculous yeah. accommodations that were given to her. And, and at a certain point, you're going to lose any goodwill that you might have had, um, even amongst people who could be inclined. And this is, was sort of related these, in, the, in a Vanity Fair piece that came out, you know, anonymously quoting some reporters there. Um, yeah, I mean, she just, she just burned through whatever goodwill she might have still had. Um, because... It, it, all you ever heard about Felicia Saunders <laughs> had to do with some drama she was embroiled in. I mean, I don't know what she ever – what journalism does she do? I mean, <laughs> I I'm sure she writes some stuff. Time. I don't know what she does. You never hear about anything – you never hear about Felicia Saunders on the basis of what journalism she produces. Only on the basis of what drama she creates. So it's yeah. like, okay, you know, that's not maybe the type of person you want to be exemplifying your quote brand. <laughs> And, and there were there uh, that guy Oliver Darcy, who's you know kind of a dope, but you know does media report inside baseball media reporting. He was saying that 
journalists of the Washington Post were getting annoyed because when, yeah. when they'd be calling up sources, they'd all want to talk about the internal drama. So it was like hindering their journalism. Yeah. She, um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't surprised they would, they fired her actually. I mean, I, you know, you, you can't, you know, there's like stuff that these, you know, you can get, uh, you can get uh, away with if you're a woman and you're claiming sexism or you're claiming racism. I mean, these are Trump cards and, uh, so you can get away with a lot. You cannot get away with all day, every day for like 10 days just attacking all of your colleagues. I mean, you can't, there is some limit. And so, yeah. I, you know, I but she went through like eight months of a lawsuit where she viciously disparaged her, you know, at, at the very least, the editors at the Washington Post. Did, I mean, did, she, did she, besides the legal claims? Well, I'm saying in pursuant to making her legal claims, she disparaged, if you want to put it that way, the editors for, you know, perpetuating a climate of sexism and not supporting yeah. abuse victims and all this. See, yeah. So, so you, they tolerated you, it. They tolerated her there for a long time, even after she sued them. Well, I actually, figured this is, because, the funny, this is a funny thing. You can't, if you fire someone for making a civil rights claim, that's right. a civil rights violation. Right, uh, which is why, which is why I f- figured that they might want to, which is why you, she had to have really been a major problem for them now to take the risk of enabling her to make another claim. Well, because now they can get, well, her, first of all, her lawsuit was dismissed and like all in like summary judgment, summary judgment means like the judge, if he assumes everything you say is true, like, do you actually win the case? And the judge assumed everything she says is true. She didn't make any case. So like that was dismissed with 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 prejudice. prejudice. Yeah. Yeah. And so I see in the, um, I see in the media that she's planning to appeal. I thought the whole point of dismissed with prejudice was, you can't appeal. Well, maybe you can appeal, but then, like, you know, they're just going to say, oh, yeah, it's also dismissive. Like, maybe you can, and then you can get it dismissed without prejudice. I don't know exactly how that works. Um, so, like, you had that. And then, like, okay, if, like, she does that, and, like, her claim is meritless, so she can, like, go back and work. Uh, but, you know, this is just, this is, like, all the Washington Post is right now. I mean, it just became everything about the Washington Post became Felicia Sanmez. And, like, now if you, she wants to go back to court somehow. Uh, you have this data where it's like, okay, you have like a case of like you ba- you had a business reason to fire her. Like she could say it's sexist. Look, you keep her now. Like she's gonna sue you. You keep her. <laughs> Imagine if you keep her. And like you know, yeah. she's gonna sue you for sexism anyway. Like yeah, yeah. When you fire her now. You have a case. Like if you keep her, like you can't say like it was that disturbing because you kept her on. Now you fired her and like you go to court and you can say, uh, you know, she, uh, you know, she made it unworkable because like she just did nothing, did no journalism and just was attacking everyone she worked with. So I wasn't surprised um, at all. Uh, You know, it's funny to see like sort of the different tiers of like uh, 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 publications, like the people she's retweeting. She's retweeting like any rando who says anything nice to her. Uh, but like today she's like, but like the, the people I've seen who've been like publications, there's this one guy named Holden Sage Foreman. Did you see this guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I read his Stanford daily op-ed on his, <laughs> what a piece of work this guy, his phobia, his, his, like his, phobia, his phobia of buffet style dining. And it's so funny. It's because it's not because he eats too much, right? I think too little. Like fat too, it's, it's too little. It's because, you know, it's, his problem was. The buffet-style setup of the Stanford dining hall made it so that he was malnourished <laughs> because he had a phobia that uh, that prevented him from taking the necessary surfing size. 
Yeah. So I avoid, I actually avoid like buffets and stuff because I like portions because I'll eat too much. I did not know the opposite problem. You see the food and then you're like, I can't begin because I, I don't know like how much to eat. Like that is a very funny, that, and, you know, that is a very uh, sort of like a, you know, unusual disability. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, everything about this guy is absurd. So yeah, she's retweeting him. She's retweeting like Rolling Stone and like, but there's not many, pe- I mean, there's not a, like she's retweeting everyone who's defending her, but it's not many people like, are, you know, Oliver Darcy, he's just like this, this terrible leftist who's like, you know, go around canceling people for stuff. And like, you know, he's, he's like, not, he, no, he, I mean, correction, Oliver Darcy's not a leftist. Do you know who gave Oliver Darcy his first big break in journalism? I know he started out at Glenn Beck. I know, but I know, but I, I thought he he like I, I don't think I don't think he's I don't think he's a, I mean I think he's like a never Trump type. Okay, well someone told me someone told me like the, he was once a conservative, but like they go they were mad at him now. But maybe that's what it means. Maybe he's a never maybe he's a never Trump, but he's not a leftist. Okay, uh, but yeah, I don't see many people defending uh, this one. Which oh, by the way, so was Glenn Beck. I mean, Glenn Beck was was a, one of the most vociferous anti-Trump. Uh, never Trump people in 2016. And then he had, you know, one of his uh, evangelical epiphanies and realized that Trump was the second coming of Christ. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, that, <laughs> Felicia. My God. Okay. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, it's funny because you, you go back to the lawsuit. I mean, the whole thing is absurd up to that point. I mean, you I, you wrote about the, uh, the allegation. I mean, every part of this. I mean, she had drunk sex. She got the guy... Uh, fired who works for the LA Times. Um, she goes, she sues her employer. She sues them because they took her off the, uh, like the sexual assault stories after she started like, you know, talking about it publicly on the grounds that, you know, she, her, uh, her impartiality might be questioned. She admits in the, um, in the lawsuit that she was, uh, she was like, you know, sort of traumatized and, and had difficulty reading the accusations against Kavanaugh. So she basically admits like she had trouble being objective. Uh, and then, you know, she loses that lawsuit, is dismissed with prejudice. And then she goes and she does this. And it's like, you know, what is this? Per- like, it's like, it's like how, you know, it's, it's like, it's like a, um, you know, it's like, it's not just like, it's like the legal stuff is serious because like, you know, they got Washington Post won that case. They, you know, the judge was reasonable in that case, but there's no no guarantee that it, that'll always happen. And so you're always sort of like you know you're sort of always open walking on eggshells with these people. And it's the, both the state of the you know it's the civil rights law, and it's just the fact that people don't like you know women crying, um, and you know will will sort of feel sympathy when they do. I mean that is just a dangerous combination, and these institutions have no idea how to deal with it. And also, obviously, even if he doesn't, even if the Washington Post won the lawsuit ultimately, or rather the lawsuit was dismissed with prejudice and they weren't found liable for anything, I mean, it's still a huge hassle that drags on for months. You know, you have the top editorial staff who now has to spend a lot of energy dealing with the lawsuits, giving giving depositions or, or, you know... It's a major drag, and it's always like a sore. It's always like um, something that you know is always sort of in the ether, and can go one way or another. So there's probably you know tension and pressure around it. Um, so you know the the mere fact of having the lawsuit exist doesn't the lawsuit dismissed doesn't necessarily obviate the quote harms that were oh, potentially you, well, you done with the lawsuit. A, you, can, you can always file another lawsuit. 
I mean, she can yeah. go back and she can say new stuff happened, and now I'm discriminated against. And like you imagine, Cong- maybe Congress should pass a new double jeopardy law for civil claims that prevent well, her. Well, from- it wouldn't be for the same thing. It would just be like new stuff happened. I was <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, again, they did something else that was mean to me, and then like you know, and, and you know, she's around, and like you know, every other one of these, like every other incompetent female journalist who like can't do her job or you know has some like problem with the management. I mean that they have a potential payoff too. So you can just imagine she's just like a toxic. You know, she's a walking lawsuit now. I don't know who like I don't know who's who hires. I mean, even if you're you're the most leftist institution in the world, you know you're not going to be woke enough to like make her comfortable. <laughs> and so there's nothing. No, no, because I mean all the all the big Me Too scandals at media organizations were overwhelmingly at left-leaning media organizations because they're, they're the ones who are most vulnerable to these claims because they have to give credence to the logic of those who declare themselves to have been victims. Um, the one big exec- exception to that, actually, um, and this was before Me Too broke out in earnest, was, uh, you know, Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly. I, I still th- I'm still sort of surprised that Fox News just fired Bill O'Reilly. Who was the number one? Who is the number one uh, cable news host for like twelve years straight or something? Yeah, um, they fired him. It, it's yeah, it was uh, yeah. Why did they fire him? I'm trying to remember back during that time because it was like yeah, it was a big story. Well, because uh, he but, he beat he beat one. Oh, he settled one sexual harassment lawsuit. One sexual harassment claim that was brought against him, I think, in two thousand four or something. He kept that under wraps. You know, it didn't steamroll into something that would cost him his job. But I think additional information got leaked about that particular settlement in two thousand seventeen, for whatever reason. And there were uh, there were additional claims, and um, he got. I think the, the the main reason he got fired is because Roger Ailes resigned the previous summer. Because there were claims made against Roger Rails by, you know, conservative women yeah. who probably in other circuits, like Megyn Kelly and stuff, who probably wouldn't be inclined to, like, just the, cavalierly the, yeah, make the, something the, up. Yeah, the Roger Ailes stuff was very credible. Uh, yeah, it was. And, I, I, and I, read, I, read a, uh, I read a book called The Loudest Voice in the Room by uh, this guy Gabriel Sherman, who is not particularly uh, – not particularly great uh, – well, I mean, I shouldn't say that. The book was well done. It was well researched on the history of Fox News and Roger Ailes. And um, this was probably 2014, 13. And uh, he, he documented a bunch of just comically egregious examples of Roger Ailes just being a total creep. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think at least in, in that case, there was some probably some veracity to the, the allegations. But that, that, that then brought in a new regime at Fox News where they were pledging to take sexual uh, harassment stuff more seriously. And then they got rid of Bill O'Reilly. But getting Bill, rid of Bill O'Reilly, I mean, they were getting rid of the, not just their top star, the top star in all of cable news, I mean, who brought in immense revenue to Fox for like almost 20 years. Yeah, that well, that was the high, you know things are crazy at the height of these moral panics. So you remember summer twenty twenty with George Floyd? It was like you know that soccer player has like got canceled for his wife. So it was like it was scary stuff. It was crazy. It was like but the Bill O'Reilly was, thing was the, that's the thing. The Bill O'Reilly termination wasn't at the height of the Me Too panic. It wasn't. It was in twenty. No, it was what before. Was the, the 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 Me Me Too is like 
regarded to have started with the Harvey Weinstein, Weinstein stuff, right? And that was in October of 2017. O'Reilly got fired, I want to say in February. Okay, so O'Reilly was fired before. Uh, so uh, let's see. It's forced out of – it says April here. Okay, it's like, yeah, maybe it was, was April. Harvey yeah. Weinstein, was Harvey Weinstein the start of it, or was Harvey Weinstein just the uh, Harvey Weinstein? Uh, Harvey, Harvey Weinstein was the start of what we commonly conceptualize yeah. of, as Me Too. Where, was, where uh, all of a sudden, was, after Harvey Weinstein, every day there was like three new blockbuster allegations, and people were getting fired left and right. Uh huh. Uh, so, okay. If yeah, you want a real right. quote, red pill about Me Too. <laughs> The, the the first allegation against Weinstein that Ronan Farrow reported on uh, basically was subsequently found to have been a fabrication or 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 totally collapsed. Like the, when Harvey Weinstein was charged well, I, and ultimately I convicted in yeah. New York, they didn't charge him on the on the the, the, the bombshell yeah. salacious allegation that ushered in Me Too that Ronan Farrow reported. In fact, it came out subsequent that somebody testified that this uh, purported victim actually said contemporaneously that it was a consensual encounter and then changed it when she talked to Ren Farrow oh, years later. Oh, yeah. I mean, don't get me started on Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, I mean, I, you assume there's smoke, there's fire, but I just looked at the stuff they convicted him on and that it was the, – the case itself was ridiculous, yeah. It's, and, uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> you got to look it up. I'm going to find this article. There's a great article by uh, Matthew Schmitz, I think. Um, on the Harvey Weinstein trial. He actually went yeah, to yeah, the trial. Yeah, I read that. I remember that. Was okay, American yeah, yeah. conservative, right? American conservative. It was Matthew Schmidt, right? Schmitz. Uh, that sounds right, yeah. Yeah, who runs Compact Magazine now. Uh, but the, 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 the tact... The, uh, yeah, the Matthew Schmitz. Matthew Schmitz. The meeting of Harvey Weinstein, uh, yeah. December 15, 2001, Matthew Schmitz. I really commend everyone to read this article because it's pretty eye-opening. Yeah, yeah. Um, the tactics that the prosecution used at the Harvey Weinstein trial were like just despicable in that they, they focused overwhelmingly on just emphasizing how physically disgusting he is <laughs> as, as if that's like legally relevant to whether he committed assault. I guess the idea, I mean, I didn't follow the trial in great depth. I just read this article and a couple others. I guess the idea was that, of course, Harvey Weinstein would have had to, given his how physically repulsive he is, would have had to um, physically assault these beautiful women in order to have any kind of sexual liaison with them because they would never have done it based on his looks. <laughs> yeah, like they wouldn't want... Yeah, not like they would want a job from Harvey Weinstein or anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Uh, where was I going with this? <laughs> we're going to talk about... We're going to talk about... Uh, so, yeah, O'Reilly, why he got fired... Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, oh, so oh, yeah. Was, was, uh, okay. So it started, so O'Reilly gets fired, and then, so, I mean, but was there anything, like, okay, Harvey Weinstein was the real, I mean, it wasn't called, it was called Me Too because of Harvey Weinstein, right? Like, they all started Yeah, because they were saying, it's Harvey, look, it's Me Too, in addition to the people who had been revealed to have been purported victims of Harvey Weinstein. Me Too is, you know, people, women coming out of the 
woodworks yeah, but, and giving but, but, you know their story like about the how Trump, they're also after the Trump election. You had the uh, the women's march, right? So you had that, which was like you know the biggest. Yeah, march. I mean that was a precursor, but but I, but me too started with Weinstein. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, though, but like women, you know, issues were were all you know were in the air. So yeah, I, I no, you're right. I, it is sort of. It does seem that O'Reilly. It seems like they went against their own interests, and they were doing so. Uh, you know, in a way, a way that was sort of overreaction, overreacting to what uh, what was actually alleged by O'Reilly. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I remember O'Reilly. I mean, there was allegations like 10, 15 years ago. I remember Jay Leno joking about it like a very yeah. long time ago. I know the name of the woman. Or so, believe it or not, I know the name of the woman off the top of my head because I'm just this ridiculous in terms of the useless trivia that is inside my brain. The woman is Andrea Macris. That's the it was like a production assistant or something, and she had come to his house in Long Island. And yeah, yeah. Maybe then he got divorced, and yeah. Maybe, maybe you do have a journalistic identity. You know, you remember all this stuff about the history of journalism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you know, actually, Gawker over the years would put out different nuggets of information that they had gotten about the terms of that settlement, and it really enraged O'Reilly. Ah. Um, and I guess, you know, if I, I don't remember who reported the information. I think it was, you know, there were a bunch of lawsuits against Fox at that time. This woman, Gretchen Carlson, had one. I don't think she accused O'Reilly of anything, but she no, definitely that accused was, Ailes. That was, yeah, was yeah. Ailes. And, and, and also just like the broader kind of culture of Fox and whatever. Uh-huh. Maybe that's why there's nobody in the building anymore. <laughs> Is it like empty? Is it like a ghost town? Yeah, I mean, there's like nobody. Uh, there, there's hardly anybody. There were, tonight when I was there, there was really hardly anybody there. Um, it was just the 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 uh, bare bones staff they needed to have these this handful of like. I mean, I didn't see the whole, every floor or anything. And there, there are people. How, there. how big? How big is the like? Is it a big building? How many floors are there? Oh yeah, it's like a skyscraper. I mean, uh, it's a sky, I mean, it's a big bu- It's a bu- big building right in Midtown Manhattan. Yeah. Oh, I, I imagine um, that's all. It's all Fox News. Yeah, it's news. It's there. News Corp. Okay, so you're in the law. So the, that's like, where the Wall Street Journal is too. So there's oh okay so, so oh so it's the Wall Street Journal and Fox News are the same building and, and who else is there? Yeah, it's a news it's News Corp. It's a News Corp building. Um, I didn't, no, I, didn't know Fo- I didn't know Fox and uh, Wall Street Journal were the same thing in the News Corp. I, I didn't know that. It seems yeah, and so and do they have a? Uh... Oh, that's Rupert, oh, that's Rupert Murdoch. Murdoch. Both Murdoch, of course. <laughs> yeah, oh, of course. Uh, okay, so you go to lobby and it's like, uh, oh, actually, I pulled up the building. Yeah, it was, it was a big building. Uh, is it like so? Like the lobby's like empty? Um, it's, not, it's not totally empty. I mean, there are there's, there are some people actually. You know, uh, Times Square was packed tonight. So I mean, I, I think people exaggerate this. Like when people do this, New York is dead routine. I mean, I've been to New York plenty of times recently, and it's it's not dead. And I think, I think it's too crowded. Uh-huh. Um, I'm just saying when I was in the, the portion of the building where you go in and appear on the show, there were just not – it seemed like there were not many people there at all. Um, so uh, – and I was uh, – on, on, on uh, Felicia Sondes, um I mentioned this on the call that I did earlier this week, but you know, just quickly. Uh, once I wrote about her on Substack last – March, uh, I heard from people who had information about her Me Too allegation. Uh-huh. You know, who had 
credibly told me information about what happened with that that hasn't been publicized. Uh-huh. Um, and although when I was writing about her, I expressly did not want to get into the details of that allegation because it's like a can of worms that I wasn't really <laughs> interested in, in opening. Um, but I'll say that once I got, got that information, it emphasized to me the sheer absurd. I mean, you can basically get the gist of this if you read the article in Reason by uh, Julia, um, by Emily Yaffe, or, or there was another article by Caitlin Flanagan um, on this allegation. You can get the gist of it in those, but there's like, there are additional details that heighten <laughs> the absurdity of her just claiming this victimhood status and demanding that everyone just accept it as established fact. Um, and and yeah, she she did this did that she wrote her big accusatory Me Too medium post um, at the, at the peak of that. Um, and yeah. then this guy Daniel Clayman. So, so you never revealed the stuff that you heard firsthand. No, because you know. I mean, mo- most of it is pretty much in the record. It's just I got elucidation of different details, um, and it was—I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's—it's absurd. Um, it's totally absurd. And um, well, the guy—the guy, the guy is uh, the guy was real, genuinely destroyed for years. I mean, I think he's gotten a couple opportunities here and there, but he was a very a. a, a Reasonably successful, maybe even very successful, like early career journalists. He got, um, you know, he's working in the um, China Bureau of, yeah, the Beijing Bureau of the Los Angeles Times. He had, had, had a book deal on China. I mean, now given the intensified focus on China, I'm sure he, he would have been in high demand for different. Yeah gigs and it just got totally totally derailed by this kangaroo, kangaroo court uh, inquisition that Felicia instigated where I think it was like the Foreign Correspondents Association did an investigation or something like that and then the well, LA Times did an investigation yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah they <laughs> confronted him there through a yeah that guy he's, at a, he's a law student now um, yeah yeah he went to law school yeah, he's at UCLA. He's still on Twitter. He followed me the other day, actually. Um, after I tweeted, after I tweeted the story, like you know, just bringing back his, uh, uh, you know, just resurfacing all this uh, old stuff. But yeah, I mean, there was nothing again. They had nothing on him. Um, they had they had literally nothing. It was he said, she said, and like what she said, like wasn't even that bad. It was like she she admitted she didn't remember it. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it didn't, it didn't matter. I mean, and, and he had had sex with another woman too. Um, and this one was also like, you know, he pressured me into it. It's like, it's, you know, it is crazy. Like this is, you know, regret equals rape is basically, uh, is basically the standard for these things. Uh, that's the standard on college campuses. I mean, that's the, the standard, uh, in elite journalism. And it's just like, you know, you're just, it's just like, you're unlucky. I mean, the woman you have, the woman you have a relations with, uh, if she one day doesn't like it or you're, or you're mean to her, it doesn't matter. You can remain friends after that. You can have texts from her. You can have a continuing relationship with her. Uh, she, she's basically, she has the, you know, sovereign right to decide any time. 
uh, post hoc that it was uh, it was some kind of assault. Um, and it's it's crazy. I mean, it really is. It really is crazy. They're you know they're not going to re- like rethink any of this. It's going to continue being like this. It, you know, it's like she got fired because she went on a rampage for like you know ten days and just wouldn't stop talking about how much she hates everyone she works with. Uh, but the fact that these like you know liberal institutions like have no like have no check on like women going crazy. I mean, that's a problem that's like going to remain. There's going to be another crazy one and you know, they're going to find themselves in the exact same situation before too long. Do you think the fact that the Washington Post fired her, even if you didn't necessarily find it surprising and the fact that at least in the media world, I mean, most people in the media are not going to be vocal about it because it could just bring them headache. But I, I, I'm pretty sure that if you were to do like a uh, secret ballot of everybody who works in or around the media, the US, like the national media, however you want to necessarily define that, um, even they, I, th- I think you would find a majority um, registering a negative opinion about the oh, conduct of Felicia. No, I- uh, well, um, it depends on what and, and, in, in part, in part, because I mean, just I guess, just overall, if they had to render a judgment about the about her conduct over the past week or so, I, I think it's in part because she chose <laughs> not the most strategically wise target with in Dave Weigel in um, making him into collateral damage for her latest demand. Because Weigel is not somebody who you could just you know pigeonhole as a heterodox contrarian or somebody who's always trying to mix it up or uh, somebody who is problematic. I mean, David Weigel, uh, who I've said this before, I think I said this before on the other Colin, but you know, David Weigel, I've gotten along with him personally and he's a pretty congenial type guy, um, but he definitely made a concerted effort over the years because he was a, you know, a college conservative and then he worked at Reason Magazine and he was you know, a registered Republican and then over the past years and especially since 2016 he seemed to undergo a pretty significant evolution. I mean I'm not necessarily even condemning him for that, I'm just no, observing it um, and you know, he, he'd, be the guy, he'd be the guy who would actually be ridiculing anybody who brings up like cancel culture or something like that and so and you know a lot of people in the media industry like him they've met him he's ubiquitous at all kinds of political events if you ever cover like a presidential campaign rally or something or a conference you probably have bumped into him um and yeah so for him and he he actually has been like i met him at uh in down in 2012 i went down to um houston to to uh, cover this big uh, prayer rally where uh, Rick Perry was appearing because he was about to announce his presidential campaign for the Republican primaries that uh, petered out because he couldn't perform even minimally competently at the debates. Um, but it seemed like he had a decent chance to win the nomination at one point. And, um, yeah, Wagle was there, and, you know, he gave me a ride places and was just very nice. And company. So he seems to just be a pretty nice and accommodating guy and um again popular within the media industry so for her for her to have no compunction about bringing down the wrath on uh, on weigel i think probably had a big effect on 
causing the tide to turn to a large extent, at least in terms of how people within the media view her. Uh, I think she just became this chaos agent. Um, yeah. And so I, I, I guess I, I mentioned all that to say, you know, is it possible that this sort of reflects a larger society-wide maybe backlash or um, <laughs> no. something against, against Me Too? Or, or is that or is it just no. like a ridiculous self-contained incident that, that we shouldn't extrapolate know. from? I think you're right. If you ask journalists about, like, you know, the uh, the behavior um, of Felicia over the last week or so, I think that majority of journalists would say it's absurd. I mean, there's like some, you know, there's some limit here, but at the same time, if you ask them, like, you know, her the sexual assault allegations that she ruined that guy's life for, is that unreasonable? I think that a majority would say she was everything she did was reasonable until this week. So, like, you know, we look at her and we look at this, you know. We look at years and years of crazy behavior. Um, I don't think that that's the way they see it. Even if they do see it like that, I mean, the dynamic of these institutions is it's not just like a straight plebiscite, right? It's like it's like uh, it's like um, you know these things have these uh, there's these dynamics. So it's like if everyone on you know the the woke sort of the the side that's about uh, the side that wants to talk about patriarchy and racism and sexism if those are the people who feel emboldened to speak up and the people who speak the other way feel the other way do not and that's partly because of ideology they're leftist partly because they're scared partly because you know there are other you know there are there people who are into this uh you know this idea of sexism and racism everywhere if those are the most aggressive people in a newsroom then it really doesn't matter what the majority of the of uh, the people think so it's like both like the majority doesn't matter and like I don't think the majority here uh, the majority of elite journalists actually have reasonable opinions they just they just probably most of them just probably think she went too far in this particular case right but still the very fact that she was terminated in this fashion and the fact that probably opinion had soured on her at least as regards her conduct in the past week shows that her claim of victimhood status on account of this past abuse or assault that she has detailed, um, that claim status no longer insulates her from repercussions. Um, and in fact, no longer even insulates her from being probably slightly villainized. I mean, I think people within the Washington Post would be inclined to villainize her. Uh, to some degree, even if they might not do it publicly. Um, and so I, I think that erosion of status that had previously been afforded by casting oneself as a Me Too victim, that could reflect some at least marginal shift in the kind of um, standards that had been in, uh, inculcated by, by the... At, by me too, at least at its height. I mean, I think. I mean, that you 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 couldn't. I think no backlash would have been tolerated against her in like 2018, whereas now it's semi-tolerated. I think if she does this in 2018, if she does the exact same thing, just like keeps tweeting again and again and again, it doesn't look there. There's a lot. I mean, yeah, she's like, you get some protection by being a victim. Um, 
by being a sexual, you know, alleged sexual assault victim, by being a woman, by suffering sexism. But there's a limit. You can't just like you can't like walk into the newsroom. You can't like walk into the Washington Post building and like start smashing the windows, right? Or like turning over the tables, or like start biting your coworkers. I mean, you can't. You could never do that. And this is basically what she was doing. I mean, you're going on Twitter and you're, you know, you're just like attacking every single person you work with. I mean, it's really, it, it, we, we shouldn't like, we shouldn't lose sight of like, she's in some ways she's typical, but in some ways she's very unusual because we haven't seen, you know, a meltdown. I don't know if you want to call it a meltdown or just like a, you know, uh, yeah, you know, maybe she was trying to get fired. Maybe she wants to go on her own, do a Substack, become, you know, the hero of, of women or something. <laughs> Blaze of glory. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's no there's no precedent for this. So it's like, yeah, there's no reason to. Th- it's not like you know, I, it's not like you could have thought, oh, she could do all this and sh- there'll be no repercussions. They'll fire every every man on the job that she complains about and keep her. Like, no, like she gave them no choice. Um, so does it reflect like anything else? I, I I don't think so. It's like this had to happen. She had to get fired given the obnoxiousness uh, of her behavior. And, you know, otherwise things could presumably go as, I mean, as normal. I mean, it would have been interesting if there was actually a lot of people at the Washington Post who were willing to speak up. So that one guy who blocked Felicia, uh, what was his name? That Hispanic, uh, he had a Hispanic name. Yeah, Jose de, 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 de Real or something like that. Yeah, didn't even he was like... You know, uh, what Dave Weigel said was like, you know, intolerable and should be addressed. Like, you know, so that's like the the extent to which somebody will stand up to it. It's like, oh, my God, you were right. This was a terrible, you know, joke. But like, just calm down. Like, you got the guy suspended. And like, you know, she blocked him and had a fight with uh, him. So it's like, maybe that guy is like, you know, like, that's the only person who can like speak up against her. It's like the fact that nobody did um, at the Washington Post just said this woman is crazy. Um and, you know, that, that, that's an indication that maybe not. If, if it had been otherwise, if like a bunch of, you know, op-ed writers Washington Post said this woman is crazy, it'd be something else. But no, they're, they're, you know, it's like these institutions, um, it's like this in the universities too. It's like, you know, it's like a lot of people, like, like there's these crazy people who are a minority, like the really, really crazy people. And then you have um, like people who are not as crazy as them, but like sympath- are sympathetic, think there's like all this racism and sexism in the world. And like, you know, it's natural that people are going to react to that. Um, and then you have maybe some people who are like against it and reasonable, but like those people don't want to speak up at all. They just do not feel empowered. They do not feel, uh, they, they, they do not feel motivated to act, whatever the reason is. I mean, I think anyone who's, I think the thing is like anyone who's like me or you, um, and like, you know, really hates this stuff and is willing to like, you know, be <laughs> sort of uh, pugnacious about it. Those people are not working for the Washington Post. You know, Me, pugnacious? Like, Never. <laughs> yeah. right. but, okay, yeah. so, so, I mean, put yourself, though, in the shoes of like, I don't know, some national security reporter at the Washington Post who does genuinely find Felicia to be crazy or at least sees her public conduct and regards that conduct as crazy. Do you really want to bring drama upon yourself by coming out and publicly tweeting that she's crazy? I don't think that the lack of people saying that she's crazy publicly is really a good barometer to determine how opinion may or may not have shifted against her. Because there's always going to be, even if 99% of them thought that she was crazy, there's still going to be an unwritten rule, or even, I think it's even a written rule, if you look at their social media policy, not to criticize a colleague, not just because it's inherently wrong, would you not choose to do that, but because it's going to, you know, again, embroil you in this drama that's probably not worth it. No, that's the point. Um, Yeah, exactly. 
that's the point. They, they, they care about whatever they're doing their little thing in their little corner, their, you know, their career. Maybe they want to do their own, uh, good work and maybe they don't like it, but they don't feel strongly enough to, um, cause any drama. And these people like the Felicia's of the world, I mean, they, they love the drama. They live off it. So, you know, like who's going to win in a situation. Now, some of us like the drama of like fighting this, like me and you enjoy like, you know, <laughs> laughing at Felicia, you know, someone like Andrew Sullivan, if you work for the Washington Post would be, you know, all over this, but like, we're long past that point where those people can even have jobs um, at a place like the Washington Post. And so it's all just the crazy people or the people who don't want to stand up to the crazy people. How about this, though? And I think you're probably right in general. But how about this? In order for Felicia to have been fired on the basis of her conduct being crazy, or despite, you know, I think they said in the term, termination letter that she was indefensibly disparaging of colleagues or whatever. Don't you also have to reject on the substance what she's complaining about? I mean, she's complaining about just if you take it on its own terms, she's complaining about trauma victims being basically uh, marginalized or re-traumatized by the Washington Post management structure. Um, and so I, I do think that in order to dismiss her as crazy it does require a substantive dismissal of what she's actually alleging. And if there is a substantive dismissal of what she's actually alleging, and it, it, it's no longer seen as entitling her to some kind of preferential treatment that she has this victimhood status, and it's no longer assumed that she's correct in her prescriptions anymore on the basis of that status, then I think, do think that could maybe be a harbinger of some kind of shift. But why? Why, why do they have to reject the substance of her thing? I mean, I think they're... they're uh, I, think they are, I think they are rejecting it, probably. No, I think they, it's perfectly reasonable. For, I mean, it's perfectly coherent for them to say... Uh, you know, we know we have to come a long way on racism and sexism. We know we don't always give survivors, you know, everything that they need. But you shouldn't go on Twitter for ten days and just attack, you know, your uh, coworkers. But like, we're gonna, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna have a uh, committee. We're gonna put a committee together to um, do a report on the toxic, you know, masculinity of the workplace, and we're gonna come back. Uh, and we're going to implement, you know, regulations to like deal with these things. That's that, you know, that's sort of how these maybe. But work. do you but do you think they would have fired her if they found her allegations to be meritorious? No, it's not about whether they find it meritorious. Or but let's, not. but, but would they like, have? I mean, but let, would they have fired her if they found uh, it yeah. meritorious? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like you can have a meritorious claim, and like you're. See, I'm not sure. I think I think I think probably the tipping point came when enough of them did not find what she was saying to be meritorious. I think, and so that they can they can then they can then fire her on this at least publicly stated ground of being excessively disparaging or violating social media policy or whatever. Uh, I don't. I don't think. So. I, I think it's irrelevant whether they believe it or not. I think that her behavior was such, so obnoxious and so disruptive that, like, you know, she really did give them no choice. Like, she could be saying something that's one hundred percent true, and they could buy that it's one hundred percent true. And even it could be stuff that she could like prove in court. Um, it wouldn't matter. You can't like. You can't just become your 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 entire public persona. Can't just become bashing all of your colleagues. 
uh, you know, there has there's a way to do this. So yeah, I don't I don't think it's you know I don't think it's necessarily going to. I don't. I, I really don't think it's irrelevant, though. I mean, I really think. I mean, it's let's re- say let's say that they did genuinely believe that she was correct in asserting that she had been egregiously wronged, um, and that her grievances were so substantiated and meritorious that they must be accommodated in the name of just social responsibility and morality. Um, I, 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 do, I, don't, I do think that that's relevant in so sort in of view, influencing the internal calculations that they make as to whether or not they're going to take a relatively extreme act of just terminating her on the spot. They have to turn. Look, do you think she could have done this? Like, if they thought it was meritorious and, like, they were convinced everything she was saying, you think she could have done this for, like, a year? Just she becomes the entire Washington Post and all she's like, uh, like, there has to be a limit, right? You think she could have done this for 30 days, 60 days, just nonstop tweeting about how much everyone who works at the Washington Post sucks? You think that, you think that's the, that, like, they could have let that go on, even if they thought she was right? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, maybe, maybe you're right. I, I just think. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm searching for an, like, an extreme analogy I can make, but maybe it's not even worth pursuing. Yeah, I think – no, I think you're probably right. I just – I don't know. Part of me does think that there had to have been some influence of what merit her, her allegations were regarded to have on the decision-making process. Uh, I'm not saying necessarily it would have – even if it was everything she did, everything that she alleged did have merit in their eyes, that it would have meant she could do this indefinitely. Um, but I think that you know, after a week or so for her to have just been terminated, I, it seems to need to indicate that there is growing skepticism not just as to her viability as a colleague but – also, as to the underlying grievances that she's expressing, yeah, I don't think I don't think it's about even. I mean, I don't think even the um, the un, the attitudes or the underlying grievances. The thing here, it's just like they have to. The newsroom and the publication has to be able to function. I mean, what Oliver Darcy, uh, uh, the Darcy guy, said what about the uh, you know they can't even talk to their sources. Like she had stopped the newspaper. I mean, that was probably an exaggeration. There was, I mean. It's probably just. I mean, remember why? Why would people leak that? Why would a reporter leak that to Darcy? Because well, they want to kind of get the ball that. rolling to get rid of her. Yeah, I mean, course. a little of bit of small talk I, I, and a phone call with a source is not really that much of a hindrance. Yeah, I don't know. I think people do want to talk about this stuff. It doesn't seem too uh, crazy. But look, look, I think like the, the substance isn't irrelevant. Look, if she was like a conservative and she was arguing that like the Washington Post was like discriminatory against white males. Um, that would have, she wouldn't have lasted, you know, seven, eight days or whatever it is, right? She would have been fired within, you know, an hour. So the fact that she lasted like seven or eight days, that was like some. Okay. I'm going to give my extreme analogy because I can't resist now. If she was, if she was charging that the Washington Post was genocidal, like to say the Washington Post was committing genocide. (laughs) I don't know how in practice the Washington Post would be committing genocide, but let's say the substance of her grievance was that the Washington Post is committing genocide and nothing is being done about it. And the Washington Post agreed, meaning the people who work at the Washington Post in the, in the upper management agreed sincerely and on the merits that she was right in accusing the Washington Post of committing genocide. Do you think that even if she was brashly expressing that opinion 
for a week on Twitter. You know, I have, a better, I have a better analogy for you because that, you see where I'm getting at, though. Uh, I, I do, but I think I have a better analogy. And maybe okay. this help makes your point. Well, you like, did. You okay. went to law school, and I didn't. So you could probably <laughs> better know. Uh, look, if her accusation was she was being sexually harassed, or she'd been sexually assaulted by like, you right. know, by editor. Right, <laughs> right. Somebody at the Washington Post, and she just went on and on about it for like, uh, you know, all this time. Like, yeah, I think that's like an experience. Yeah, that, like it's a little bit, a uh, little bit more plausible of an analogy. Yeah, the, the Post is committing genocide, right? Uh, but yeah, I think I think it does matter. Now, look, even in that case, if you go on for. No, I mean, first they would do what they would do is they would fire. You know, but would they fire? Would they fire the person who's yes rape claims the that they believe is is one hundred percent meritorious within a week? They would fire. Yeah, no, they wouldn't in that case. They would fire. They would fire the editor, or they would suspend him. Well, right. Would, okay, so then, so then that actually goes to why they, the merit or lack they, thereof they got, does they, have they, relevance. But they did this. They got rid of Weigel for a month. He was suspended. What else did she? She wanted to like suspend the whole thing. So like, what? So they would have like they would have given her like what she wanted. So she did get what she wanted in this case. Uh, but hold but, on, like, hold on. If, if 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 you're saying they would have tolerated her wild Twitter conduct, if they would have tolerated, they long. viewed her allegation of rape by like the Washington Post managing editor as credible and 100 percent meritorious. Um, they would have still let her do her thing on Twitter. Then that seemingly means that the, the merit actually is a big factor. It's not irrelevant. Well, okay. In that the case, merit of what she's complaining about is then relevant. In that in that case, it, well, I mean, it, it depends on whether it's provable too. I mean, in that case, it'd be provable. So you'd have a lawsuit. And well, we're, stipu- that we're stipulating that it's provable. Okay. Yeah. I, you know, uh, uh, yes, she could last longer. But I don't think she could do this forever. I, I do like I, I think they give her X, they give her Y, they give her Z. Eventually, it's like it doesn't matter if they believe her or not, or if they're sympathetic to her cause or or not. Like at some point, like you have a newspaper, and it's like it's got to the, the the entire discussion on the Washington Post. You know, we you were, we follow the same people, we're in the same Twitter circles. It's nothing but Felicia Sonmez. I mean, that's the, that can and, and that is not sustainable. You can't like just have her be the Washington Post, even if she's been uh, sexually assaulted, even if something terrible has happened to her, even if it, you know whatever she says is true. Like you know, you still have a newspaper to run, like you have any other business to run. And at some point, okay. you give people no choice. Even if you grant that it couldn't go on forever, meaning she couldn't literally do this till the end of time. <laughs> this is all, yeah. They would be cal- they they would be calculating how much tolerance they have for her conduct on the basis of whether her grievances are regarded to be merited. I uh, no, I I agree with that. Like if you're saying she could have kept going for maybe I don't know what a couple another couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether if she was talking about a rape allegation, then okay, then that that yeah, maybe yeah. Well, we're in the we're in the same page. I mean, the thing, you yeah. Know, I don't know. Like, I don't know uh, why we got bogged down in this. Um, <laughs> do you want to make because you're, what, because you're I think what's the difference is you're so you're like you're like oh she was fired that's a big deal like after seven days it shows there's like a backlash to me too and i'm like she was this obnoxious and she was able to be this obnoxious for like seven or ten days i'm like surprised she was able to be obnoxious for that long maybe it's because i'm a a little bit more attuned to the inner workings of different media institutions um but it is a pretty dramatic step for the washington Post to have done this 
Yeah, it's dramatic um, to go on Twitter for 10 days and sure, yeah, the biggest mean, story of the world that I can hear newspaper. Yeah, it is. Um, do you want to do an in-our full segue into some sort of Ukraine little addendum here, or should we just skip Ukraine and go to Belarus? Uh, I mean, depends. Do you have anything you, have anything, uh, you want to say about Ukraine? Um, well, it's interesting because I watched uh, Biden's interview today, uh, yesterday on Jimmy Kimmel, and... Ukraine didn't come up. Uh-huh. Jimmy Kimmel didn't bring it up. Biden didn't bring it up. Um, it was gun control stuff and, you know, wire cinema mansion hobbling the Democratic agenda, um, which Jimmy Kimmel just openly professes his support for as an active partisan. I mean, maybe people don't anymore, but, you know, it really <laughs> – you don't even have to go back to like the days of Johnny Carson. Even like when David Letterman would have Obama on, clearly you could tell that Ob- uh, Letterman had some degree of admiration for Obama. Um, but David Letterman would not have said, "Yeah, I'm an Obama voter. I'm a Democrat. I want to help you, Barack, get your agenda through Congress, and you know, speak about uh, we, Democrats in terms of the royal we." That's what. Jimmy Kimmel did uh, with with Biden, um, so I guess I guess it maybe just goes to how uh, fractured the media is, where like they Jimmy Kimmel doesn't even perceive any obligation at all yeah. to be somewhat universal in his appeal, whereas yeah. you know that was the whole point of like a Johnny Carson, and even to some degree with like a Jay Leno or a Letterman or a Conan, but now it's that that's like a bygone yeah Jay era. Leno they used to I mean Letterman was a bit more open so when I was growing up it was Letterman and. Leno and Letterman was known as more liberal, yeah, but too. he wasn't one tenth as you know open about it as no. today. And Leno was like, you know, the Leno. I mean, the Leno Monica Lewinsky stuff. I mean, people look back on that now. They're like, oh my god, because he was just making fun of her for like being a slut. They're like, people are like, oh my god, this was like so evil. He needs to and apologize. I, last I checked, he never apologized for it or or anything. But yeah, he, his whole thing was you know Clinton sex jokes. Or actually, go watch them. They're 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 hilarious. Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it really is. Letterman, it, Letterman was seen as a bit more liberal, but. You had to kind of read between the lines to figure that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't just. It wasn't like our democracy. It wasn't like yeah. you know, pu- you know, your your Putin's butt buddy. I mean, like this Colbert uh, kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to explain to you know people who are maybe a little younger than us, like sports too. It was like you didn't think of like Michael Jordan or like you know these athletes. It was like you know they kept their mouth shut about politics. Well, was, Michael Jordan, you know the famous line from Michael Jordan? Yeah, yeah. Republicans buy sneakers. Republicans too. buy. Yeah, and he, and he I'm, 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 imagine like it. imagine Steph Curry saying that today. No, it, it's crazy, and uh, and the sports journalists too. I mean, we're not like demanding it too. Like it's a if, uh, insurrectionists and domestic terrorists. Buy sneakers too. <laughs> yeah, and so like it's like everything is like leftist, right? You have the late night hosts, you have the sports, you have the athletes, you have the uh, the journalists covering the athletes. Um, you know, you have like the American Medical Association. So like you look at donations from like uh, uh, like doctors and like you know medical professionals, medical associations. They were pretty evenly split between the parties, like in the nineteen nineties. Uh, so like yeah, everything became you know. Uh, hyperpartisan and uh, no, I didn't. I didn't know that about Kimmel. It's like it's weird too. It's like if you're if you would. So I guess there is. I don't know if you've seen uh, uh, Fallon. So if Jimmy, if you watch Jimmy, Jimmy Fallon, it's still sort of 
like that. I mean, he does have these moments, like after Charlottesville, he'll like cry about it and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know, but, but those moments the- are frequent. Those moments are frequent enough that, I mean, for Johnny Carson to have done something like that would have been like a huge. Like the earth would have stopped spinning, right? Whereas you kind of just expect that every couple of months, Jimmy uh, Fallon, I mean, I don't watch, of course, Jimmy Fallon, but like you you just uh, (laughs) bake in that Jimmy Fallon every couple of months is going to have one of these solemn monologues where he talks about some serious political issue because democracy (laughs) depends on it, right? No, you're right. He, he's a, but he's still a comedian who like occasionally does political stuff. Well, these guys are just political comedians. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. like, like, like Seth, uh, My- Seth Meyers. I mean, Seth Meyers, I, I, I don't watch Seth Meyers. I, I actually did, wrote, um, <laughs> a couple of years ago, I wrote, uh, uh, an article about what has happened to late night comedy because I actually found it just interesting culturally to examine, um, and, and part of it was that the Daily Show sensibility just became the, ubiquitous sensibility amongst the late night, like this late next generation of late night hosts. So, you know, if you watch the daily show now, but again, I don't, I don't watch it, which is kind of an analytical problem, but I'm pretty sure it's true that if you watch the daily show today with Trevor Noah, and then you watch Kimmel or Seth Meyers or Colbert or any of the other people, there's not going to be any dinner, any difference in sensibility at all. Um, whereas John Stewart was sort of a departure of sensibility from yeah. uh, the old guard talk show host that he was, you know, competing against when he yeah. popularized. So I actually thought I the Daily Show, and even I, even John Stewart wouldn't have been so overtly brashly partisan in the way he conducted inter- would conduct an interview with the president. I mean, people who criticize him for doing like softball interviews and stuff. Uh, but actually, somebody sent me an interview he did with Pelosi in 2014 when um, Pelosi was minority leader and Stewart was pretty tough on her actually I mean he, she brought up, he brought up that her staff was getting these lobbying gigs and she was pretty startled so I mean it's just not it's just not the same at all today if Jimmy Kimmel were mean to Pelosi that would somehow be abetting January 6th retrospectively <laughs> or something yeah yeah I mean I, I thought Stewart and actually Colbert when he was on the Colbert show I think she thought they were funny and they were ideological it wasn't it was especially Stewart it was not the sense of like uh you know I'm kissing up to the Democratic Party it's like I have these leftward views and like I will attack like Democrats when they're pro-war and I'll attack Republicans when they're pro-war and that was more tolerable this stuff is like just as political like political but in a partisan way but also like very dumbed down too because it's like you know it's network TV it's like it's for a very uh, general audience so it's just like a terrible combination of like you know the, the stupidest kind of tribalism like plus like the dumbest comedy and it's it's not funny well and I'm sad what happened to Stewart, by the way. I saw his uh, – uh, his. I, I watched maybe five or ten minutes of uh, the thing that uh, when Andrew Sullivan was on about you know white privilege. And, man, that guy, his brain has, has melted over the years. It's, it's a really sad thing. Yeah. yeah I think, I think the uh, – obviously everybody could tell that Jon Stewart himself was a liberal or a Democrat or however you want to put it. Um, I know there are some people here, by the way, Richard, that will object to your – use of leftist to describe who they regard as squishy liberals. I don't think it matters <laughs> that much, but um, I, I think, you know, I, a lot of people I knew as peers would watch John Stewart every night. I, mean, uh-huh. I would watch it occasionally, 
Um, you know, I wasn't a, it wasn't appointment viewing for me, but you know, Stewart is a clever guy. He's a good host. He was talented. He would always have a funny flow to interviews where he'd be keeping people on their toes and, you know, it was, it was worth watching on occasion, right? Uh, remember I got, I got the America, uh, coffee table book, um, <laughs> as a gift in 2004, um, but I, but I, by when I think back as to why I was watching him, it was not because necessarily that I I loved. It was such a breath of fresh air for me for somebody to express pro democratic political views. It was more because he was just sort of like good at puncturing bu- bubbles of bullshit. You know, he was like just against phoniness and pretension. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, it had been maybe a bit of a, a slant, and maybe it was more intensely uh, kind of calibrated against Republicans than Democrats. But fundamentally, it was just about kind of kind of bullshit. Because even those montages that he popularized of just splicing together different cable news clips in a funny way, yeah. that was effective because it showed the absurdity of the cable news clips. Yeah, um, not necessarily because it proved some kind of pro-democratic point, and. To, the, but and today, I mean, and, and it, back when Stewart was popular, a huge amount of bullshit was coming from the Republican side and wasn't being adequately challenged, uh, right? Whereas today, if there's any bullshit that's not being adequately challenged, it's probably more likely to be coming from liberals. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, like, the whole sensibility doesn't work because it's just – all the, they're all still obsessed with Trump um, because it was that's the only material they have in the, meaning this new breed. Anyway, b- back to the omission of um, Ukraine from this interview that Biden did. I mean, I don't want to read too much into it, but if it didn't even if it's if the rhetoric around Ukraine is still to be believed and it is of this seismic importance for the future of democracy and if ukraine falls as you know gary kasparov always says then that is going to fundamentally destroy the world order and authoritarians will have seized power globally from (laughs) from uh small d democrats you know if the stakes really were that high you'd think in one of the very rare interviews that biden never does and by the way there was a, i don't know i tweeted this earlier i don't know if you saw it but there were uh, there was a politico item on biden's incredible inaccessibility to the media compared with his predecessors mm-hmm. um peter baker is the washington correspondent for the new york times said that biden is the first pre- he's covered five presidents and biden is the first one that he's never spoken to as president so like, I mean, Trump would always be rallying against the fake news and he would always – but then he would banter with the New York Times all, you know, the next day. Uh, Biden you know, does these platitudes about how you know, the media are integral to our democracy and then he just freezes them out. Um, but um, if the stakes really are as high around Ukraine such that the U.S. intervention is justified, you'd think that on the, one of the very few occasions that Biden does some kind of public interview – like this, it would come up so he can just remind everyone how spectacularly important it is and uh, boast uh, about how 
uh, incredibly um, inspiring it is that the U.S. is facilitating this proxy war. Um, but it didn't come up. So, I mean, I don't know. I think may, is that because it's just not as much of a priority? Because the policy hasn't changed. The policy is pretty much the same. But maybe he doesn't feel as prideful as to the outcome anymore, which would make sense given the, uh, you know, the steady Russian advance, advances and the, um, the lack of any indication, really, that there's going to be a change in the trajectory of the war at this point. Yeah, I always thought that uh, people would get bored with Ukraine. It was really crazy there for a while. Uh, but, you know, a foreign policy thing can never, you know, people get excited. I mean, it's every foreign policy event is like this, like Afghanistan, like after 9-11, we go into Afghanistan. It's exciting. People are talking about the women of Afghanistan. It goes on for 20 years. Nobody even re- remembers anymore why, you know, why we're there after a while. Uh, same thing with Iraq. You know, people get excited. They go into Iraq. Uh, you know, they get they, they get bored with it. We leave Iraq. Uh, you have ISIS, you know, Iraq comes back on the news again. Now nobody cares about Iraq anymore. It's always like this because... Like, but is Biden you know, bored of Ukraine? No, Biden personally is probably not bored so, of Ukraine. So uh, what, what, what I'm sort of puzzling over is why Biden wouldn't bring it up. Because uh, he's, poli- I mean, he's a politician. Biden cares about what the, uh, uh, you know, what sounds good to people. I mean, he, he's... The, does, well, does, does that mean then that he doesn't feel it's politically advantageous anymore to be beating the Ukraine drum? Yeah, apparently. I mean, I've, I've always thought that Biden gets that. Now, he it's not advantageous to him either to be, so, quote-unquote, soft on Putin and try to come to a uh, come to a negotiation and end the war either. Um, but it's, you know, it's one of those things where it's like the best thing for him is probably uh, to just, you know, keep it off the front pages. Um, doesn't mean that there aren't ideological people within the administration and to a certain extent Biden himself who really care about Ukraine and really care about what happens in Ukraine. Uh, Biden definitely cares about it. That was his whole portfolio. No, no, I think, yeah, I think he, I think Biden, I think Biden is sort of empty inside and just sort of cares about what, you know, whatever's politically good for him, uh, he cares about. Um, But yeah, I mean, but, you know, like when you go on Jimmy Kimmel, what are you doing for you going on Jimmy Kimmel? You're just, you know, you're trying to reach, you're trying to reach a wide audience directly. And, you know, you're going to talk about whatever you think, you know, whatever Kimmel wants to talk about, whatever you think the audience wants to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there was this also this New York Times article. Did you read that one that I sent you earlier today? Um, the the um, intelligence officials saying that they have no insight yep. yeah, operationally into Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, I, I pointed this out because I watched – Live a Senate hearing, maybe about a month or so ago now, where the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, testified. And she said something that struck me as like insane, but which nobody seemed to notice or really point out, which is that she said, you know, on behalf of the US intelligence community, that they had more insight into like the operational capacities and the logistical status of the Russian army or the Russian military than they did into the Ukraine military, notwithstanding the fact that the U.S. is the one subsidizing the Ukraine military. So at least they've been claiming for a while that somehow Ukraine is just 
uh, a mystery to them in terms of like where the aid is going and what their plans are operationally for their next line of attack and, and so on. And this, um, but this New York Times article really added some uh, meat to that um, because it was reported that, you know, basically when, when uh, Austin, the defense secretary, and Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, talk to their counterparts in Ukraine, they're only getting the, the broad outlines of, quote, strategy. They're not getting anything about operational details. And that means pretty much they're, they're hearing in these high-level meetings what anybody who follows the war on, like, Twitter or uh, uh, Telegram could hear. Um, and, and yet, you know, they're still so – they project in public this – uh, absolute confidence in Ukrainian victory, and yet they have no idea what's going on. So, you know, maybe and people were speculating as to like why this leak happened, um, which basically just underscored what Avril Haines said a couple uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, one theory I, I I floated was that potentially it could provide these U.S. officials with some plausible deniability in the event that Ukraine, for example reneges on the agreement that it purportedly made with the U.S. when it received these long-range missiles and uh, does let me you know, fire into Russia or do something beyond the scope of what the U.S. seems to think is reasonable. Um, the U.S. can then just say, oh, look, we don't have this. We, we don't, we're not involved. We don't have this insight. Because you know, I, I don't know how credible it is that the U.S. genuinely does not have, like genuinely is just at a loss <laughs> as to... <laughs> What the, what, what the Ukraine military is up to. I mean, really, the CIA can't figure that out. The NSA doesn't know. I mean, I don't know how credible that is. So I mean, they might have some reasoning for doing it, or maybe they genuinely just don't know and are that incompetent. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I don't have much uh, trouble believing that they could be that incompetent. You know, I think these people are, to a large extent, ideological i mean i don't see much evidence that they have their own end game did you catch in that article by the way it said uh you know the U europeans do not think ukraine can launch offensive and regain back russian territory but the u.s intelligence agencies think they can yeah yeah i did see that <laughs> yeah so like the way these people talk and the way these people think you know it's maximum sort of like unjustified i, I think uh, uh, unjustified self-confidence and like optimism about what they're doing i mean we saw that in afghanistan uh we've seen that in other places um and then there's uh uh you know this this optimism and then there, there's just like you know willingness and you know uh, a desire to push for to push forward um and you know it strikes me as you know it strikes me as uh, plausible that they do not ask many questions because they don't want to know and now why are they telling you know this to the uh uh new york times why is this an article you know i, I don't i don't i don't know like it's like it could be a way to pressure the ukrainians but like we're so far like maybe they're taking baby steps in that direction but we're we're so far away from like it's even where it's even like plausible that like america would like pressure ukraine i mean ukraine is still like a very sacred thing and, you know, it's like, and so, yeah, I don't know, but maybe, maybe they're trying to sort of tiptoe in that direction. Uh, although I don't see a lot of indication for that. Yeah. I mean, you always have to bear in mind when speculating about the motives for a leak like this, that there almost certainly are like rival factions within 
the government who have different attitudes about issues like this. So when they when there were those big leaks on the same on the same week of how the U.S. was more intimately involved, they had led on in the sinking of the of the uh, warship and in killing of generals in terms of its intelligence sharing activities. Um, there were a number of reasons why that might be leaked. Maybe it was a official who was troubled by how aggressive the U.S. was being in at least somewhat contravention of its public assurances and, you know, wanted leaked it in the interest of potentially de-escalating, right? Um, or, you know, maybe it was a, an official who was wanted to be braggadocious about the fact that the U.S. was so involved in these, you know, supposedly successful operations. And maybe that would then inspire even more proactive um, types of intervention. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to say. Um, or maybe it's just somebody who, like, thought that the information ought to be out there. I mean, I think if you actually, I mean, if give it, giving it the most charitable spin, I think, is if, say, you're a serious intelligence professional and you just want to, genuinely do the best job in collecting all the relevant intelligence to provide to lawmakers so they can make informed decisions. And it happens to be the case that despite $40 billion recently going to Ukraine to subsidize their war effort, the intelligence community is genuinely in the dark as to what they're doing. You know, then maybe that alone could be justification for you to talk to the New York Times, and you don't necessarily have some kind of wider strategic objective in your rationale for doing, doing the leaking. Yeah, I mean, there's different factions, so you can speculate, but you could, you know, I don't think it's too hard to see what they're doing in any particular story. Um, you know, it's getting late. Uh, Michael, why don't we, do you want to start? Yeah, yeah, let's do the call. Uh, sorry. The callers. Uh, all right, Matthew, you're up. Uh, hey, gentlemen. Uh, very good discussion. Hello, by the way, from Germany. I woke up very early today. <laughs> Just for us? Very early last. And in part, actually, <laughs> I think, subconsciously, maybe. Because I was thinking, God damn it, I'm going to miss this thing. Because I, I like to. Colin has invaded in. your psyche. Yeah, exactly. But I, I really enjoy listening to you guys, even when I when I strongly disagree. One, one point I want to make at a personal level, Richard, is. I actually am an alumnus of University of Chicago Law too, 2016. Um, and I 26, also, 2016, you said? 2016, correct. And I also... Oh, we just, I just I, missed you. 2013. Yeah, exactly. Although, you know, 3L and 1L don't see each other much, so we probably wouldn't run in front of each other. But that's an, that's an interesting No, no, no we, we, wouldn't have, we wouldn't have even been there at the same time. I would have uh, graduated in 2013. Correct, correct. But I'm saying yeah. if I had been... If I yeah. had been class of 2015, we probably wouldn't have known each other either gotcha. because of how segregated the 1Ls the first years are at law school. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So j- just, just going into some of the things we talked about briefly um, for the January 6th thing, I think I mostly agree with what you're saying. I think the underlying issue is, is, is serious, but it just, cause you know, I would argue certainly that the election was not stolen and that this was a demagogic and dangerous effort by Trump. But I think for me and for probably a lot of other people, it just rings a bit hollow to see Democrats defending our institutions because these people have vilified the country so much and its symbols and myths and so on 
and you know also these ongoing assaults on due process and free speech. So it's it's kind of unfair because it's ad hominem. I think what Trump did is on the merits very bad, and you know the riot. I mean, it was silly, and some people were engaged in, in very dangerous behavior, but I think most people were kind of petty criminal, engaged in petty crimes. This is kind of exaggerated, although some people did beat up cops and so on. But uh, for me, I just think it rings a little hollow coming from the Democrats, although that's not a perfectly logical response. I think that there'll be a number of Americans who see that too, because it's like, really, you guys are defending our institutions so much of the United States, you know? Yeah, you know, it, it sort of reminds me of the insincerity of a certain line of attack that was used against Trump all throughout his term, particularly in relation to Russia, right? They would say stuff like, Trump isn't patriotic because he's cozying up to dictators like Putin and Kim Jong-un or whatever, right? Um, that was a big line of argumentation, maybe even the main one or one of the main ones in the first Trump impeachment, the idea that he had betrayed the nation. That was the language actually used in the articles of impeachment against Trump. Um, so there was a lot of this pretension that Democrats were upholding true patriotism and Trump was defiling what it means to be a patriot. And it's just like, okay, is anybody who's going to be persuaded politically on the basis of appeals to patriotism going to be persuaded by that case being made by Adam Schiff? No, it was just sort of like <laughs> phony. And I think that phoniness also is manifest in a lot of the rhetoric around January 6th with this incredibly highfalutin invocations of, you know, the citadel of democracy and, you know, by uh, people talking about overthrowing the go the government was on the verge of being overthrown. I mean, I was when I was doing a little bit of research just to refresh my memory for the for Tucker tonight. I found that a congressman, John Yarmouth, Democrat, I, I think, tweeted from at the actual Capitol on the on the that very day that the government was nearly overthrown. He actually used that phraseology, um, and it's just like, okay, this is not. Why can't you? Why can't they ever? I mean, and this is not exclusive to Democrats, but Democrats are major offenders recently, at least since 2016. Why can't they ever describe something as bad without also falsely describing it as apocalyptically bad? You know? Yeah, so, I anyway. agree. I mean, you know, you look at the footage, too, and you, you see um, some people engaged in, in reprehensible conduct, assaulting cops, but... To me, it seems at least, and I, I'm not next year on January 6th, but the vast majority are engaged in like, you know, pretty petty trespass and LARPing, more or less. And, you know, to call these people all traitors and insurrectionists, it seems very overheated and insincere. Um, yeah, I, I wrote an article on uh, Substack last summer about a guy who was surveilled for six months by the FBI and then arrested in July of 2021 for the offense of merely being physically present in the Capitol for a grand total of 13 minutes. That was the full extent of the charge leveled against him. And, you know, this is like a, this is sort of crazy. Um, you know, we're, they, they always brag about how this is the most intensive federal law enforcement investigation ever. Almost 800 arrests. A lot of them for very nonviolent, for, for, for right. very trivial nonviolent offenses. Um, and nobody cares about the civil liberties implications. You know, say what you will about Tucker, but that's what that's what he was 
focused on, at least when I was on the show tonight, that's what I, I talked about. Um, you know, I, I, I also wrote about another guy uh, who was who the government conceded committed no non-violent, no violent offense. He wasn't charged with violence. And yet what they did, meaning the DOJ, is invent a new theory whereby in the sentencing phase, they accused him of operating within a, quote, context of terrorism, so basically tarring him as a domestic terrorist, even though they couldn't prove that in a criminal sense. And that arguing for lengthier, a lengthier prison sentence on that basis... Um, so there have been a lot of pretty extreme theories that have been introduced uh, that to justify certain novel law enforcement behavior as a result of January 6th. And that's just being, of course, totally obscured by this, this, uh, this committee where all they want to do is just dramatize for the 10,000th time the fact that a guy who wasn't wearing a shirt you know, <laughs> entered into the Senate chamber and, had and started, started yodeling, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so I, I I think again if you if you have the view as I certainly do that these election fraud allegations are are, are stupid and false. Trump's conduct was reprehensible and bad, but it's just hard for me to give a shit when I see the Democrats, as Richard has said, that the power structures are so much in the hands of liberals that it just it's hard for me to see the right as as threatening to the same extent, even when they're engaged in, in poor con- in, in bad conduct in illiberal uh, conduct. Um, and also hard to, as I said, to buy the the left, the, lib, the liberal Democrats' invocation of our institutions in America and so on. Yeah, you know, I covered the election fraud, some of the election fraud allegations at the time, and my, the the segment of my followership that is right wing was in a constant uh, state of angry revolt. Um, but I, I must think, like, getting so worked up about those frauds, I mean, those fraud theories, in a way, unduly amplifies them and legitimizes them i mean to me they're just so dumb that mm-hmm. they ought not to be <laughs> i mean the um, only like like for me that you have to just remember how decentralized our elections are as as you know because you wrote about this and the, the only place where it's plausible that there could be a scheme like this are the urban areas because there'd be overwhelming opposition to trump and yet Biden did worse in those districts than Clinton. So if they're rigging the vote, why would they give him worse margins than Clinton? Yeah, I mean the candidate who outperformed yeah. uh, in like Detroit was was Donald Trump. Right. I mean he did slightly better in in, in predominantly white rural and suburban counties. That's how he won. Yeah, I mean, and even if you look, I mean, we don't have to get into this into the weeds of this, but even if you look at like Indiana, for example, right, where of course nobody was focused because mm-hmm. it wasn't a decisive state, but the same pattern held in terms of Trump overperforming within inner city Indianapolis right. and then Biden overperforming in the Indianapolis suburbs. So, I mean, was there also this concerted fraud in Indiana and why would they have done the fraud there? Anyway. Yeah. Or Texas, Texas, where Trump, yeah, Texas too. Uh, Texas Biden's too, yeah. ass, uh, you know, the reason the margin was so big uh, was because Trump did amazingly well with working class Mexican Americans, not the type of Cubans or Venezuelans, Mexican Americans yeah. in the Rio Grande Valley. Yeah, even Tejanos. The that Biden, yeah, which, but which, I mean, the, but, but, but the sub, sub, suburban versus urban kind of paradigm also even held in Texas. It was the same. I mean, yeah. Biden's vote totals in like Dallas, Fort Worth were surprisingly high, and um, right, and, and in the and, suburbs and, were, yeah. were quite strong. 
I mean, that's the what I meant in the suburbs, in the suburbs, yeah, yeah, of Dallas. And then the Rio Grande, still everything. Well, yeah. One quick point I want to make. Um, uh, of, Matthew, just could, Matthew, just could, just because it's late. Um, sure, sure, sure. I'll, keep, I'll go. Yeah, Take care, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Richard, do you have a thought on that, or should, should we continue? Yeah, let's continue. Okay, uh, Mini Ninja, you are up. Hey guys. Hello. Hey. I'm like I'm like on three topics ago. I knew this was going to happen. Sorry. <laughs> I was um, I was still reeling in on your, you know, the Weinstein and the whole sexual Me Too movement, and and I got a interesting story for you guys. I am. Um, well. You know, during the whole Me Too movement, what, what that came out, the Weinstein thing came out, like, was it 2016, 17? When did that break? 17, yeah, it was the fall of 2017. Yeah, okay, so it was 2017, and um, I, was, uh, I was in a predicament myself where, you know, I had been assaulted, family, I mean, it's whatever all this stuff but and i didn't have anywhere to go like you know who the fuck was i gonna go to the police the government the military the church because they're all fucking filled with you know filthy people so i i fucking didn't know what to do and i started researching and i'm like you know where does someone go with information and i stumbled across this guy named julian assange and wikileaks i'd never heard of either one of them and I started reading up on, on his case, and and I couldn't fucking believe, first of all, a guy was stuck in a place with no sunlight or anything like that. And anyway, so... You mean his case thinking. where he was charged in Sweden with yeah, sexual I mean, offenses that, and we had to take asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in London? Fucking bizarre, right? I yeah. mean, and these women were obviously willing participants, but then they were coerced and all that. But, so... I, I started, Julian caught wind that I was poking around and, and we became friends because, you know, he knew that I wasn't lying. And I don't know if anyone actually knows this, but Julian, uh, he's been targeted since he was a kid. He, he, uh, his mom was caught up in a, uh, a cult in Australia. And Julian talks about this on a TED Talk where he moved around. He had 36 different schools, you know, running from this cult. Which ultimately, that's what got him into, you know, defending human rights, um, was that. And he, he actually busted uh, some pedo cults, too. But, all right, getting off track, though. Yeah, what's, what, what, so, the, what, let's get to the bottom line, if you don't mind, just because Well, we're a I late. just want to say one of the, one of yeah. the things that, uh, that I, I realized that women tend to be, like, much better at it. You know, at, at, at being, like, if they're the predators or they're the, the sociopaths that are pretending to be victims when they're not, I mean, just through experience, I just, I just kind of noticed <clears throat> that women are a lot, you know, I don't know, they're just better at, at acting at, at it. Um, growing up in it, you know, I, I had to, <laughs> I mean, you watch them, you know, you, you know the yeah. game, you know what they do, you know how they play it. But anyway, well, I mean, okay, so, yeah, because I mean, how how do girls like in school feud with one another? They, you know, plant rumors or gossip, or they basically they engage in psychological warfare against one another. Whereas boys will just fight physically. 
So girls have a lot of tra- girls have more training in the techniques. I, where- I think you know, absolutely true. I mean, between both my parents, my mom was like she was better at it. You know, she's better at covering it, and they all have a veil. You know, they all have a, a costume they wear, whether it's you know, my parents pretended to be you know born again Christian. You know, my father was a minister. She was the perfect minister's wife. And she was much better at covering up. Um, but but I kind of felt like the Me Too movement was kind of hijacked by the celebrity class. You know, and it left no room for, you know, just ordinary people to feel like that they, they did matter. You know, and all yeah. that. And well, it, well, it, it wasn't just hi- it wasn't hijacked by the celebrity class. Yeah. It was started by the celebrity class. I and mean, that's the whole reason it became a thing. The Times Up movement was this, you know, Hollywood, you know, uh, organ. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. A good. It really was, and it's disturbing because even now, you know, this freaking celebrity class—they they co-opt, you know, an elite class—they co-opt everything. Black Lives Matter, like it doesn't really, you know, what I mean? They just—they're really good at it. And so I'm glad that people are out there catching on, though. It seems like there's—it's a growing. You know, where, where people aren't getting so hoodwinked, you know, and, and they can see the projection, right? Because yeah. what do you, uh, you have a thought, Richard? Uh, no, I mean, I second all, uh, all that. I mean, the thing about, you know, the celebrities hijacking me too, or whether it's a late movement or like a, you know, a p- movement for the broader public. I think a lot of these things that Me Too was dealing with, I mean, there's cri- there's criminal matters, and then there's uh, things that don't rise to the level of criminality, but we still want to make into a national, you know, a national issue, like people being harassed at work or women being mistreated, and you know, not a, some of these things they just need to be solved by sort of norms and by people's private affairs. It's uh, these things are often they do not have good solutions at like sort of a national discussion policy level. And I think when we try to look for that, we get in trouble. Yeah. You know, what's odd too, though, is like when there are claims, like there's never any fucking investigation. It just, it's just all, you know what I mean? Like where, yeah. I don't know. All right. Well, uh, well, thanks mini ninja. Yep. Yep. You guys take it easy. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Uh, all right. Andrew, you're up. Hello. Um, I just wanted to make one quick comment on Ukraine and then ask a question regarding the Ukraine situation where um, Joe Biden's not talking about it and there's supposedly a lack of information regarding what our equipment is doing in Ukraine and what kind of impact it's having or how the Ukrainian military is doing as a military unit. It reminds me of the Afghanistan pullout where we kind of had very assured statements from generals and politicians. And then when the shit hit the fan, they kind of fell back on this whole, like, well, there wasn't a very clear picture on the ground and we kind of got hoodwinked kind of thing. And I feel like they're preparing to take the L where they're kind of casting ambiguity on what they know. And honestly, it's not completely fake because if you think about it logically, our intelligence systems are probably pointing at Russia because we're learning about the war. That's what our, goal would be is like let's study the war and we're going to be studying combat and studying logistics on the russian side more than ukrainian so we just look the other way and i think it serves a purpose of when you know the collapse does happen it kind of will have some like you said plausible deniability not just if it escalates but even if the ukrainians get beat and we'll just say hey we didn't know um what do you think about that yeah i mean that did cross my mind Richard studied Afghanistan very extensively, so 
can maybe see if he sees a parallel there. At least in terms of taking the, I mean, what crossed my mind was the idea that it could be, this leak could be geared toward priming the public to take the L. Um, but on the other hand, nothing on a policy level seems to have changed, right? I mean, the, they just allocated the $40 billion that could last through the summer. Although, you know, you do see guys like Kasparov and, uh, you know, the, the, defend, the, the Ukrainian defense ministry uh, is constantly complaining that the weapons aren't coming quickly enough. And Kasparov said, you know, this is not a matter of some sort of resource deficiency. It's a matter of lack of will or something. I think that might be actually be true. I mean, if the, if, if they did want to get the weapons in there and operable, operable, operational as quickly as humanly possible, I think they could probably do it. So I don't know. I'm just, uh, I don't have a f- definitely conclusive take. I'm just kind of toying with a different, some different thoughts. What do you yeah, think? I, I would doubt that they are uh, trying to prime the public for a loss. I, that doesn't sound like them. And to them, do they think that they can't accomplish what they're setting out to accomplish? I think they, you know, they're, if anything, overly optimistic. And nobody really knows. I mean, it's hard to predict the zigs and zags of the uh, of the war. So I would I would be surprised if it's that. You know, like my also like Mike said, there's uh, no indication of any other policy that indicates that they're you know stepping back. Everything is a escalation. Uh, so you, I mean, we've actually seen a lot of these stories. Um, in the media recently about how hard it is for Ukraine on the Eastern Front. And part of it's just the reality because Ukraine has been losing uh, territory. So when they're losing territory, you know, the the story has to be to some extent things are going poorly. Uh, but there's a lot of like, you know, stories of uh, reporters going to the front lines and seeing what's going on and, and reporting back to that. You know, I, I, it's partly I think the Ukrainians and the media have their own uh, relationship. They have an interest in showing that, you know, the Ukrainians are in trouble and they, uh, and they need help. Um, but, you know, it's just like, I think that's sort of shaping everything. The fact that things are not going uh, well on the battlefield for Ukraine at the moment. They've still shown no ability to really take back territory. And I don't think the U.S. is ready to give up. They're priming people for a loss, but, you know, it's gonna, it, the realities on the ground are gonna uh, shape the coverage. Yeah, yeah, Zelensky's office today just said that the Ukrainian casualties per per day have now increased to 100 to 200. Before it was, I think, 60 to 100, yeah. but now it's yeah, up to 100 to 200. What it, are the real numbers? Yeah, that I was going to say. I mean, is that the real number? I mean, is this just more information, warfare, because and this saying is, that this 200 is soldiers this are, this are death? Two, yeah. 100 to 200 killed per day, yeah. Wow. Um. But I mean, I, I got you. Got to wonder though about the veracity of that claim because everything that they put out for public consumption for the West is information warfare. So maybe they might even have an incentive to inflate the casualties because that could you know heighten the urgency of the U.S. and other NATO countries to up the ante in yeah. sending weapons. I mean, so if you look at the um, if you look at the Telegram, the pro-Russian Telegram accounts, I mean, they have like, you know, these videos, they're horrifying videos of just like, you know, a lot of people killed and on the yeah, Ukrainian yeah. side. And you don't see it from the other side like the the Russians are killed, you'll see like one or like a few at the most. And but you'll see it on a much larger scale. Uh, so you know who knows about exact numbers and they can have an incentive to uh, inflate or deflate. But I mean, but they are losing 
territory. And if Russia, I mean, the Russians, I think, admitted, I forget what the number was, but, you know, the U.S. says up to 20,000. The Russians admitted, I think, you know, something like 5,000. Somebody correct me if I'm not, if I'm not remembering. I know they admitted 2,000. Yeah, I think, and then I think it was like three, or, I think maybe it was two. I thought, I thought the first time that they admitted a figure, it was 2,000 something. Yeah, that was the first time. Uh, there was also a leak in the Russian uh, press um, that had, uh, supposedly had casualty um, figures. I forgot what they were. They weren't close to the 20,000 that the U.S. claims, like up to 20,000, but it was something large. But like, you know, Ukraine is losing the territory to, to Russia, so you figure, uh, you know, you figure that you know, they have to at least be uh, comparable. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it doesn't, and it looks like from what people are saying, uh, like the Russians are advancing and like they're taking many, many fewer casualties. They're not getting ambushed like before. The Ukrainians are in set positions. They're getting, you know, shelled by artillery. artillery. And so, yeah, it's a question how long this is sustainable for the Ukrainians. People assume that they could sort of fight forever because they have for, they have uh, uh, weapons. Um, you know, they basically have a limited supply of technology and weapons coming in. Uh, but yeah, Russia, I mean, Russia has a real army on the ground that's been uh, you know, stockpiling weapons, and you know, you don't build an army from scratch to make up for you know decades and decades of uh, of being behind. Uh, so, yeah, we'll we'll see how this goes. But I think you know, I I, I would not read too much into the, you know this story, or actually most of the other stories, is reflecting some kind of a uh, big American plan. Yep. All right, All right. thanks, Andrew. Andrew. Okay, thanks. Uh, Philip, you are up. Yes, I um, had a question earlier. This is mostly related to the Felicia Somnus situation. Um, did we talk uh, on Tuesday? Yes, we did. I talked. You're the Wal- you're the Walgreens guy. Yes, I'm the Walgreens. Okay, guy. I thought so. Yeah. yeah works at Walgreens. I was, more, I was wondering, um, what would be the purpose yeah. of the Washington Post tolerating her attitude, which, in my opinion, was way worse than David Weigel's in terms of morale and um, workplace. I guess workplace, um, well, workplace morale. What was the purpose of them um, keeping her there for over a week of this behavior? Well, Well, they initially capitulated to her. I mean, they initially capitulated to her. That's why they suspended Weigel. I mean, there were leaks that came out of, like, the the immediate email and Slack statements that this editor put out saying that we will not tolerate a – Harmful environment, blah blah blah. It was it was all uh, prompted by Felicia's complaints. Um, so I mean, I, th- I think they, you know, first of all, there probably were a lot of people in the Washington Post who would agree with her about the utter unacceptability of that retweet, however sort of stupid and innocuous it seems to most of us. But then, of course, she she kept just escalating, and uh, and so that that tolerance, you know. Vanished. Because yeah, I just wanted to thought in my opinion, it was like she's creating a toxic work environment herself by continuing even after the punishment was meet. Yeah, that's what I was saying, Philip. That's why I said I'm not I'm surprised she lasted that long while Michael was saying, you know, it was surprising that, you know, they fired her. They took this drastic step. To me, she was so obnoxious that, yeah, it's amazing that she lasted however long she lasted. And then in yeah. the end of the situation. Well, I mean, but, 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 but I mean, but it's true, though, more broadly speaking, that the people who have that mentality, who people have a mentality akin to Felicia's, 
probably create a much more toxic work environment than the people who they're accusing of creating a toxic work environment just because you have to always be walking on eggshells around them, whether you're male or female, whether you're offending them or, you know, triggering their trauma or whatever. It's just probably, it's not very pleasant. Yeah, that, that was my opinion too. I was like, her attitude and stuff like that would just make it difficult for me to work with her every day because I would think no matter what I say, I could get in trouble. Yeah, exactly. And then I was also just wondering, like, um, I guess probably more slight question for Richard since you did go to law, finish law school. Does David Weigel, like, in light of this situation, especially with how long they tolerated Felicia Sumner's, I mean, I don't think it's exactly related, but does he have, like, a legal case for civil rights against the Washington Post? No, pretty much no. Yeah, the employers mostly can fire you, do whatever they want, unless you're a protected class, which means woman or minority, and you can claim that it's based on that, but you know, something like this wouldn't uh, wouldn't necessarily give rise to a claim. Well, he could have a he could have have a claim through his union representation, though, right? Potentially, and it's sort of interesting because even though people who work at these new media outlets love to tout how amazing their unions are and spend lots of time organizing their unions. It's one of the few industries in the U.S. that actually is on the upward trajectory of unionization, these, you know, media outlets. Uh, and yet, you know, clearly it had no, uh, you know, it, it didn't afford Dave Weigel any due process. Maybe he just accepted voluntarily the suspension or something. But um, I would think by way of the union, if he wanted to, there might be something he'd be able to pursue, No. Anyway, uh, all right. Oh, thanks for you had a question. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That was for uh, that was that was a thought that I was posing to Richard. Oh, what did you say? Um, I'm sorry, I missed it. What was it? I mean, do you, I, I would think that Weigel could potentially have a claim. Uh, could could make some sort of grievance through the union if he wanted to. You know, given that uh, he seemed to have been deprived of due process, I don't know. It's possible that he voluntarily accepted the suspension and therefore maybe mooted whatever claim he might have had. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, not, but, I'm not sure. I don't know about the, uh, the whatever the collective bargaining agreement is. Yeah, in theory, I think that's what unions do, so you'd think so. But, yeah, who knows in this case. Okay. All right, thanks, Philip. And final caller is Shelly. Hello, Shelly. Well, I just want to say you guys have really triggered a lot of trauma for me. Um, oh, no. I will definitely be posting on Twitter, and hopefully you guys will be fired. Okay, we're, we're going to cancel our call-in show permanently then. <laughs> we'll leave five minutes. Whatever it is we do. Um, yeah, I, Michael, I just I haven't had a chance to like call into your show, and I just want to really thank you for your overseas reporting on the Ukraine situation. And, oh, thank you, uh, Richard. I've been I've been following you for a little while, and I I, I remember you from a segment on the Hill back whenever Crystal and Sager were there. Where uh-huh. you kind of challenge Sagar on like some China narratives. So, you know, you guys have both been in my radar for a little while. Um, I guess about the Ukraine situation, have either of you guys followed Brian Verletic from the new Atlas? I haven't, no. <sighs> mm, doesn't ring a bell immediately, but he's possible. He's doing some really good updates, and he, he's a former Marine. Um, he was stationed in Japan, and now he lives in Thailand. He covers a lot of Southeast Asia and stuff. But he's- What's the name again? 
His name is Brian Berletic, um, and okay. his YouTube channel is called The New Atlas. He does maybe updates on uh, the Ukrainian situation. Now, he is pro-Russia, um, but he does updates every couple of days, and I found his analysis... Is he pro-Russia in that he's actually avowedly pro-Russia, or is he pro-Russia in the sense that anybody who criticizes Ukraine is accused of being pro-Russia? He is pro-Russia. Okay. Um, <laughs> but not, not in not in a, a blatant way or not in an unfair way. Like he is, his analysis is still sober, even though. Is this guy on Twitter? Um, no, he's been, he's been kicked off Twitter. He's been censored for forever. Oh, so he's on YouTube. Yeah, he's on YouTube. His channel is called the new Atlas. He's been, uh, I think there was like Scott Ritter initially got like a lot of, um, attention for his kind of like sober anal analysis of the situation on the ground, but I think Brian Berletic has proved to be a more honest or realistic analyst than even Scott Ritter. Um, and he's been talking about kind of like the weapon systems that are coming in and, and the amount of training that's required, and Ukraine's just not going to be able to do it. It's Russia's, Russia's got him. And, and one of the things that's really great about Brian Berletic's analysis is the fact that he only uses, whenever he's going over his um, analysis, he uses the Pentagon. He uses the State Department. He only uses Western sources. And then he takes from Western sources. And then it yeah. from that. That's interesting. I might have to check this out because it's uh, it, it would uh, sort of solve some kind of mystery here, which is that the Ukrainians were supposedly getting these unlimited Western weapons, and they were supposedly superior to what the Russians ha have, and they supposedly had e mobilized all these men, and they had a manpower advantage, and the Russians hadn't even declared general mobilization, and were still at peacetime uh, strength. But then, like, you know, we thought that with time, things were moving in Ukraine's direction. Uh, Ukraine was getting the advantage of, of time. And then, actually, no, it's turned around. Well, Russia is advancing in the east, but also I look at the daily updates. <clears throat> and Russia is the one, if they're not advancing on every front, they're the ones shelling the Ukrainian position. This is happening in Kharkiv. This is happening around Kherson. Uh, this is happening on, in the uh, southeast of the country. So, like, on every front, the Russians are either advancing or they're, you know, they're the ones hitting the Ukrainians. And you sort of wonder, you know, this is, not, this is sort of uh, puzzling from the perspective of the narrative that we've been told. So... Uh, you know, we'll still see. We'll still see what happens. Maybe time does still favor the Ukrainians, um, but you know, it wasn't really supposed to go like this over the last few weeks. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with you, like from from the narrative. But from from what I've seen with the entire scenario, is from the way that you explain it, from the things that I believe, is that if you think about the amount of attention and effort that the West, the United States, and NATO has spent building up the Ukrainian army, um, you know, training on weapons, making them basically a plug in and plug out to NATO. You're talking about the forces that they had in the East are their most highly trained. And this is like what the United States and the West spent eight years doing. And those forces are under attack and moving backwards. There's no amount of training that you can do in four weeks that's going to replace 
the project that the United States and the West was subsidizing training and pushing forward, you can't do it in four months if you've been trying to do it for eight years. Well, there are also those units in the East that are these beleaguered guys who were just drafted and lived in Lviv or something, right, and were sent to Donbass. Um, so I don't think it's exclusively the most well-trained forces who are in the East, but I, t- I take your overall point. Right, but what I'm, what I'm saying is the reason why they're having to send those beleaguered conscripts in is because the forces that were trained as part of the professional military are mm-hmm. not cutting it. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I think that's. Yeah, I think that's plausible. Um, I will take a look at the guy who you mentioned, Shelley, and uh, let you know what my take is. Um, yeah, we'll do that next week. Join us again, Shelley. Well, we'll have an opinion on the new Atlas. Yeah. Yep. All right. Uh, all right, everybody. This was a long one. Uh, I salute you if you stuck in for the whole, <laughs> whole show, and. Uh, We will reconvene soon enough. So take care. All right. Thanks, Mike. Bye, everyone.